When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. So what happens when you have a date with death? In New York, in New Jersey, we don't really have uh, the death penalty, at least not in a way that's uh, used in a standard manner, but a state that makes pretty... Pretty repeated and frequent use of the death penalty is the state of Texas. And right now in the state of Texas, there is a gentleman named Ramiro Gonzalez who was scheduled to be executed today. Now, he committed a particularly brutal murder about 21 years ago, and uh, he's been on death row since 2006. The way this goes down is um, it was 2001, he murdered an 18-year-old woman. He himself was 18 at the time of the shooting. He was a drug addict after an abusive childhood, according to his attorneys. And he's been waiting for the last 16 years to be executed for his crimes. Now, here's what's interesting. In an attempt to atone for his crime, he has petitioned for a temporary release to undergo the donation of a kidney. Would you let him? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Thousands of miles, thousands of circumstances separate a Jewish clergyman based in Maryland and a death row inmate in Texas. But now, The two men's lives have become enmeshed through dozens of handwritten letters over the past year. And so there's one that sticks out to Cantor and Chaplain Michael Zeusman. A February 2021 response from the the Polanski Unit Prison in which Ramiro Gonzalez offers to donate a kidney to one of Zeusman's congregants. So understand what happened here. This Jewish clergyman in Maryland has essentially become pen pals with this death row inmate in Texas. And one of the people in the congregation needs a kidney or, you know, uh, all indications are that person is going to die prematurely. I don't know the details of that person's health. Perhaps they're on dialysis or whatever the case may be. And Ramiro Gonzalez recognizes that he's going to die, recognizes that he's going to be executed. He just wants a delay for a temporary release to or undergo the organ donation surgery. What do you think? Should you be able to delay execution to give away an organ? I'll tell you my vote. My vote is yes. Uh, Here is someone whose life can be saved by someone who is trying to make amends for taking someone else's life. And it's not as if you get to escape death. He's still going to be executed eventually. 
The state of Texas, though, disagrees with me. They won't allow it. Officials in Texas have objected to the procedure because of Gonzalez's approaching execution date, which, again, is today. On Monday, the Board of Pardons and Paroles denied Gonzalez's request for a 180-day reprieve so he can undergo this operation. So that's where things were as of yesterday. Now, here's the big news on this story because um, now his execution has been delayed for a different reason. So this death row inmate who'd asked for his execution to be delayed so he can donate this kidney, he was actually granted a stay of execution on an unrelated appeal over allegedly false testimony during the penalty phase of his trial. So Ramiro Gonzalez, 39 years old, he's scheduled to be executed today. He asked the governor of Texas in late June for a 30-day delay of his execution so he can make this kidney donation, a desire that, according to his lawyers, stems from his efforts to make amends for the murder that made him a condemned man. And then, in a totally separate uh, appeal on this, we learn that an expert witness, Dr. Edward Grippen, testified that he believed Gonzalez presented a future danger, a determination a jury must make in Texas before sentencing someone to death. Now, that fellow, Dr. Edward Gripen, has now recanted his testimony, and he says he no longer believes Gonzalez presents a future danger. So in their ruling on Monday, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals sent the case back to the trial court to review whether or not this expert witness, Dr. Edward Gripen, gave false testimony regarding recidivism rates and whether that testimony impacted the jury's decision. Ultimately, I think this is a pretty fascinating case. I think it's fascinating that uh, he still wants to save a life, even though um, you know it doesn't necessarily mean a get-out-of-execution-free card. But the stay of execution means he's not going to be put to death today. And it could also open up the possibility that he's going to be able to make this kidney donation, something that his lawyers wrote in a letter to the Texas governor that was in keeping with his efforts to atone for his crimes. So he, according to Cantor Michael Zeusman, the ordained Jewish clergyman whose letters with Gonzalez first catalyzed the inmate's desire to donate a kidney, He still wants to save a life. And according to the Cantor, Texas is denying him that. By the way, uh, I'm a big advocate of organ donation. I am not a living donor, but uh, I've I've just even when I just renewed my license, I've made arrangements to give all my organs away when I ultimately die. But there are a number of folks in our audience that could use a kidney. Um, Two of them are in regular touch with us, both very nice people, it seems. So if you'd like to be a living donor and save a life, please reach out to me, write to me, and we can uh, hopefully match you with one of these folks, uh, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. So Gonzalez had initially sought to donate his kidney to a member of this Jewish congregation in Maryland, whom he learned about in correspondence with this, uh, this cantor. But apparently his rare blood type meant he was not a match. After that, he sought to make a true altruistic kidney donation, and that's to donate his kidney without a known or intended recipient. But 
he was deemed ineligible under the state criminal justice department's health care policy. What about you? What do you think? Should he be able to donate a kidney? 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me tell you what's coming up. And when I say he, should anybody that's on death row be able to delay their execution for a time in order to go through this organ donation process? My view is absolutely. Because will a lot of people view this as a way not to do something right, as this guy seems to want to do, but just to delay being executed? Absolutely. My view is, I I think if you're getting that kidney and your life is saved by someone whose kidney would otherwise just, you know, be wasted, I don't think you care. I think you want that kidney. Tell me if I'm wrong. Let me tell you what's coming up. Very excited uh, to talk in about 10 minutes with Ben Burgess. Ben Burgess is a... Uh, a fascinating individual. He is a uh, left-wing guy, and as left-wing as can be, and he's the author of a book called Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. And he says the left is just going too nuts with, with cancel culture. So we're going to talk to him about that. And then in the uh, three, uh, well, excuse me, in the, our third hour, They get mad at me when I say the 3 o'clock because they're afraid that people in Nevada will not be able to figure out that I'm in New York. And if I say 3 o'clock, that they will have to figure out midnight. So they get very upset with me when I say the 3 o'clock hour. It's not the 3 o'clock hour. It's the third hour of the show. So there's that. Now, in the third hour of the show. Uh, Bob Wolf is going to be here. He's a, a really interesting guy and uh, f- someone that has uh, the, probably the best voice maybe that I've ever heard on radio. He is a college and career skills readiness trainer, and he teaches something called HICA skills, H-I-K-A. And these are the skills that are not being taught in schools. The skills that you need for a job in the modern-day corporate environment, not being taught in schools. And he's going to be joined by uh, Mark Erlenwein, who is uh, New York State's 2022 Principal of the Year, and they've had Bob come in and talk to the students at his school about some of these skills and training them and getting them ready for uh, for a career. And uh, very excited, My uh, one of my oldest friends and closest friends, Brian Goldstein, is here paying a visit uh, to the studio. Uh, Brian, I've known uh, since I think we were about uh, 13. It is great to see you, Brian. It's great to be here, Frank. What, what, what made you uh, want to spend a late night uh, in Midtown uh, hanging around a, a radio station? You know, I wanted, I wanted to meet your crew. Well, we know that's not true. No, I wanted to see you too. I'm 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 proud of you as a uh, as a close friend for a long time, on um you know and how far you've come. Well, and and, I wanted to be here and and see it in person. I I appreciate it. It's great to see you, and uh, uh, you've always been so encouraging privately. And uh, it's funny. I got an email yesterday that uh, somebody that I was trying to book as a guest said that he was familiar with me going back to the uh, public access television show we used to do, Murano Vision. So it's it's very funny that people still have some memory of uh, the work that we were doing all those years ago. So uh, it's great to see you, and uh, I'm glad you're doing so well as well. Thanks for having me. And um, for people keeping track of barbecue invites, Brian was invited to the barbecue uh, this coming weekend. He did forfeit his invite to allow uh, someone else on the backup list to be able to receive that barbecue invite. So we'll see where that goes. All right. 
1-800-848-9222. Loretta is in Brooklyn. Hello, Loretta. Hi. Good evening. It's Frank, right? I When last seen. <laughs> I wasn't sure. I'm a first-time caller. Oh, welcome. And uh, I wasn't going to call, but um, I told your screener I'm a big proponent of organ donation. Uh, I'm 77, and I'm a registered organ donor. It's uniform body donation that after my viable organs are harvested, the rest goes to the med students for research. Well, I think that's great. Um, what, what about this case of this fellow that's on death row? Should he be able, or should anyone on death row, be able to, to get, get a stay of execution? Not, I'm saying they don't get executed. They still get executed. But mm-hmm. maybe instead of, you know, the day they're supposed to get executed, they get a little bit of a delay of a month, two months, three months in order to make that organ donation. What do you think? Absolutely. I think Texas is stupid. Yeah. Um, well, what do you say, Loretta, to folks that say, look, Oh, he killed an 18-year-old innocent woman when he was high on drugs. He made his own choice. If he was so concerned about living a little longer and having the opportunity to do altruistic things, maybe he should have thought of that when he was shooting people. What do you say to that argument? But he's not the person now that he was when he was 18. None of us are the same now when we were 18. And um, if his motives are altruistic... Or not, it doesn't matter. Some good can come out of his death. Uh, Loretta, I completely agree with you, and uh, and thanks for sharing that, and thanks for calling. I hope you'll make it a regular habit. Uh, so since he found that he's not a match with this fellow in the congregation in Maryland, at least two preliminarily compatible kidney recipients have been identified, including a cancer, a cancer survivor in Washington State with the same rare blood type as Gonzalez, who has spent four years on dialysis, hoping for a life-saving kidney transplant. Now, imagine if you're this guy. Four years on dialysis, and look, I know we have listeners on dialysis. They can tell you how unpleasant that whole experience is and how time-consuming it is and how uncomfortable it is and how draining it is and how it denies you the opportunity to do a lot of other things in life. Imagine you're that guy in Washington, and you hear there's a guy that wants to give you his kidney. And the state of Texas is saying, well, sorry, you know, he killed people, so we're going to kill him before he gets to give his kidney away. How ticked off would you be? I'd be pretty ticked off. 800-848-9222. What do you think? Jacqueline is in Brooklyn. Hello, Jacqueline. Good morning, Frank. Um, I think as far as Texas is concerned, that is the classic definition of a waste of life. In this case, it would be at least two, if not more lives that would be wasted especially since this guy has a rare blood type he should be able to donate his blood uh he not only can he give away a kidney he can also be a living donor and give away part of his liver um the liver would regenerate so he has the potential to help save at least two lives if not more and like the prior caller said, it doesn't matter if he's sincere and altru- altruistic or not. He's going to be put to death anyway. So if he could save two or more lives, why not? And everyone on death row should be 
uh, permitted to do that. Well, let me ask you that, Jacqueline. And I, and I agree with everything you just said. I, I'm, I completely agree with you. We're on the same page. But you, you, what you just said kind of inspired another idea in me. Now, I, I'm not a big believer in the death penalty, but I completely understand why people are believers in the death penalty. And look, the state of Texas has the death penalty. They're not going to change it. We have the death penalty federally. Doesn't look like there's much of an appetite to change that. What if we did this? In the states that have the death penalty, or even on a federal level with the federal death penalty, what if we did this? What if we were to say that if you're sentenced to death, not only can you give your organs away, but we are mandating that you have to give your organs away? What do you think of that idea? I don't think le- I think I think it's a great idea, but I don't think legally it would be possible to do that. Well, but uh, I-, I hear what you're saying, and I know people, you know, have a lot of um, uh, say over their own bodies. But if we, as a government and a society, can make the decision to kill someone because of their crimes, why can't we say we're going to take all your organs before we kill you? They'd, they'd have to change the law because I don't think, as the law stands right now, that there there is legal uh, authority to do that. But they should definitely give people the option. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, you're right. They would have to change the law. My view is I think they should. If we're going to have the death penalty and we're going to send the worst of society to prison and, and excuse me, not to prison, to the electric chair or to hanging or to the firing squad or lethal injection, whatever your your desired execution method is. Um, as as the previous caller said, sometimes these people do change while they're awaiting execution, which is one of the reasons, one of the other reasons that I'm not really a believer in the death penalty. But let's say they don't. If we're going to send people that have committed the most horrific crimes in the world to death, why not at least get some organs out of them before we do that? Is that that crazy? I don't think it is. 800-848-9222. Jenny is in Westchester. Hello, Jenny. Hi, I'm absolutely in favor of the organ donation. And I don't understand if he's been waiting on death row this long. What's another what's a little longer? four or five months? Right. Yeah, what's a little longer? As far as the mandate of having people on death row donate organs, and Frank, this is America. <laughs> I don't think you can... You can do that. Well, but I mean, think of, I, I, you're right, we can. It would require some changes to the law. But think of how odd that is, that in America we can decide we're going to kill you, but before we kill you, we can't take a kidney or two. Um, well, in America you decide you're going to kill you because that is the punishment for a particular crime. Right. And and in my version, the Murano Amendment to the Texas Death Penalty Statute, the Murano Amendment is um, we're deciding that the punishment for you committing murder one for a premeditated murder is not only are we going to kill you, but we're going to take your organs and give them to needing recipients beforehand. I, I like this. In fact, you know, years from now, there's all this stuff that's named for people that nobody nobody knows anything about what the original uh, who the original person was. You know what a Rube Goldberg device is, right? Do you have any idea who Rube Goldberg was? I'm betting most of you don't. You know what the Blaine Amendment is? Those of you that are big into separation of uh, church and state. Do you know who Blaine was? 
that actually was the namesake of the Blaine Amendment? I'm guessing even the folks that know the Blaine Amendment don't know who James Blaine was without looking it up. We all know what gerrymandering is. Does anybody know who Elbridge Jerry actually was? He actually pronounced it Elbridge Gary. But there's all these things that nobody knows what they're actually the impetus for naming it for these persons. I would like 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, 100 years from now, 400 years from now, when I'm long gone, when I'm a distant memory, if we ever get to a place where we take out all of the organs for the people that are on death row before we put them to death, that punishment should be the Murano. That's what it should be called. And I'm serious about this. Those of you, and I know we have a lot of state legislators that listen to this. I know we have a lot of folks around the country that are big death penalty advocates that listen to this show. You, the death penalty statute ought to be amended to mandate not only are you losing your life, but you're losing a kidney or, or, or something on the way. Whatever, whatever people could take out of you that might save a life. We're going to do that before we kill you. I like it. I like it. 800-848-9222. Devin is in Manhattan. Hello, Devin. Devin. Is it Kevin? Uh, well, not according to Kenneth, but uh, maybe according to you. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. Well, it is Kevin. Ah, my uh, sympathies. I don't understand what the delay is. Ship him out to the hospital, take the kidney, and then put him to death. Yeah, well, I, I guess, I, I don't know, apparently there's a lot of testing that needs to happen. I don't know why it takes 180 days and not one or two days. That's a fair point. Uh, but uh, that's what his lawyer and his team has been asking for. And look, I want to reiterate, he's not going to be killed today. He might be killed in a week, two weeks, three weeks. Uh, they have to, they've remanded this to the lower court to determine if this expert witness, uh, Dr. Gipton, actually... Uh, might have given inaccurate testimony that influenced the jury. 800-848-9222. Alex is in Brooklyn. Hello, Alex. Hey, Frank. Thanks for taking the call. Sure, Alex. I would take it a step further than just someone that's in death row should be be mandated that they should have to give organs of theirs to help another person that's struggling with a kidney or whatever it is. I think that if you killed a person, even if you're not on death row, even if you're just in prison for life or even for an X amount of years, if you use your life to kill a person, then you should we should be able to force you to use your life to save another human being. Well, I'm open to that. I'm open to that, Alex. I, I um, I would rather, and thank you for the call. What I would rather do is maybe give um. I don't know, a sentence reduction. If you're a prisoner and you give away a an organ that somebody needs to survive. But I don't know how I feel about that. Even If you're not going to be – look, to me, I don't believe the government should have the right to put people to death. Honestly, I, I just don't – I think that's too much power for the state to have. But I'm in the minority. People uh, don't agree with me on this question. So if we're going to say the government has the power – to kill a person as a penalty, what is the harm in saying as part of that penalty, you have to give all your organs away to eligible recipients? I, uh, especially at a time when this country, the United States, is not doing well in terms of organ donation. Uh, other countries do a lot better. In Europe, for instance, they mandate, and I've been a big advocate that we should do this here. They mandate that everyone's an organ donor unless you opt out. 
That's the opposite of what we have here. Here, no one's an organ donor unless you opt in. And because of that, Europe has a much easier time finding organs for people. I wish we had that situation here. 800-848-9222. Alan Yonkers has been patiently holding. Hello, Al. Hello, Frank. I wanted to say that I don't think the process of uh, an execution should be delayed uh, for an organ donation. Uh, I believe when it comes to this individual case that you touched on with Governor Abbott, uh, I don't believe Governor Abbott will uh, give a stay of uh, the execution date. I think he would go forward with it. Uh, Number one, he's a conservative Republican. Number two, he's running for re-election. Now, let me ask you to pause there, though, and I'll let you make your comment unabridged and uninterrupted. I think a lot of the people that just called me and agreed that there should be a delay to allow him to donate the organ, I would guess that many of them are conservative Republicans. Why do you assume that be, that conservative Republicans would not be okay with the idea of saving a life before this person has their punishment meted out? Well, this is. let me just give you a scenario, uh, an individual case. In the late 70s, uh, Ted Bundy was the serial killer who uh, killed people in a state where there wasn't a death penalty. Uh, He escaped. He went to Florida. He killed some uh, innocent college uh, girls at a college dormitory, and he was put on death row. The process took many, many years for him to finally be executed. I believe the year was 1991. So the thing is, it's already a process that takes too long when you have serial killers and people who do heinous crimes. So I think if we're going to get into making delays for organ donations, I just don't think the general public uh, would want that to occur. Well, you might be right, actually, uh, about that. That is, um, you know, that's a fair that's a fair criticism, and that th- that does happen. You know, one person who has. Um, has had a lot of tragedy in his life. And that's why I'm amazed yeah. that he is, um, you know, such a nice guy is, uh, is Kelsey Grammer. Kelsey Grammer's uh, sister was, uh, was raped and murdered. Wow. And, um, you know, th- that this was someone that had killed other people uh, before and after that, you know? Uh, so uh, there's the argument to your point that if we're delaying, Metting out the execution of these murderers, maybe you're putting the next person, you know, uh, maybe you're putting the next person's life in jeopardy. Uh, ben Burgess is uh, is here. We're going to talk with him in just a bit, but uh, I want to try and squeeze in uh, at least one or two more of these uh, phone calls on this. Lou is on Long Island. Hello, Lou. Yes, good evening, or good morning, I should say. Mm-hmm. Uh, this organ harvesting is already going on, and do you know what country is doing it? China? I'm guessing China. They do all that stuff. You are right, sir. Do we want to go down that slope? Well, look, um, n- no and yes, right? So the, I say no, absolutely well, no. So, I'm Lou, sorry. Lou, there are only a handful of countries on the planet that even still have the death penalty. You got Saudi Arabia. You got Iran. Yeah. You got China. Now, do we really want to be in that in the com- the company of those countries to begin with? I say no, but we we but, yes, but you're willing to to harvest their organs before they are put to death. That's right. That's so right. What's the difference between us and China then? Because mine is a well on this one, then there is none. You know, uh, there is none. And again, I want to be clear: I'm against the death penalty, not for it at all. If we as a society have it, I think not only should this guy be able to get a delay, 
But I think it should be mandated that you have to give a kidney or some essential organ. That's my take. All right. uh, Ben Burgess is here. We're going to talk about cancel culture, free speech, and what the left and the right are doing to hurt the cause of free speech. Those of you that are holding, we will get to you at some point if you want to hold. And uh, we're going to talk about the skills that you're not learning in school in a bit. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. Frank, if your fat monkey heart is still beating, then congratulations. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, I really always enjoy talking with uh, Ben Burgess because he is um, maybe one of the most intellectually honest commentators out there. He has no problem uh, calling out people that he agrees with politically for unorthodox and incoherent behavior. And I think if everybody on all sides of the political spectrum did that a a bit more often, uh, we'd be in a much better place as a country. He's also, uh, he's a podcast host and the author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. Ben, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Frank. So, Ben, um, the title of your book, uh, uh, you know, the subtitle, Critique of the Contemporary Left, a lot of folks may assume that you're a uh, dyed-in-the-wool right-winger donating to Republican politicians, uh, (laughs) storming the Capitol on January 6th. Are you a right-wing guy? I'm not at all a right-wing guy. I'm a columnist for for Jackman Magazine, which is a— left-wing magazine. I just heard you talk about the death penalty. I'm very much against that. I think we should have a much more humane uh, prison system even. And, uh, and you know, if, if I had my way, you know, we would have, you know, we would have Medicare for all. We would have universal pre-K. We'd have, you know, I think a much more, you know, humane society. But that doesn't, you know, the reason that I criticize people on the left isn't because I disagree with any of those goals. It's because I think that Oftentimes, I see people on the left doing things that I don't think advance those goals. So um, what exactly is the left uh, doing wrong, the contemporary left? What's, what's, what are they doing that you have an issue with? Sure. So I think that, um, you know, the, the title of that book, you know, uh, Canceling Comedians or the World Birds, you know, I was kind of trying to go for the most extreme example I could of a, of a kind of something that's that's just silly that's like uh that makes people look like overgrown hall monitors you know when uh, when people uh go after that example uh you know comedians because of some joke they tell you know which is uh, which is problematic uh which i think is is just kind of a distraction from any actual sources of power in our society but i also think you know that um you know in 
I, I think that there are some people, you know, on the left who get so sort of consumed with trying to go after people who, you know, we might disagree with, who, uh, you know, who who might, you know, maybe even say things that are genuinely offensive or bad, you know, that I think I think people can lose sight of the fact that, you know, free speech, you know, should be an important uh, an important left wing value. You know, I see some people, for example, sort of cheering on. Uh, you know, corporate censorship from social media platforms. And I don't think that makes sense from a, from a left perspective. Give me some other examples of um, an instance where the left has gone after someone where you think that hinders the cause of uh, a free speech. Yeah. I mean, so, so for example, like a couple months ago, you know, there was, there were people who were pushing to um, for Spotify to censor Joe Rogan because of uh, comments that you know he's made about COVID and other subjects, uh, and and I think that that's a I think that's a huge mistake. Not because I don't have a problem with anything that he's ever said, you know, but I think that um, you know, but because I think it's short sighted, you know, I think that it's wrong on principle and it's short sighted. I think that you know if you think about it, because if you want a platform like Spotify. Uh, that, uh, or, you know, Twitter or any of these, you know, that are owned by giant corporations that have every incentive to stay on the right side of the national security state, that have every incentive to oppose any kind of left program that would mean the giant corporations were paying more tax money to pay for social programs. Uh, you know, you want them to have more sort of censorship power. I think that's ultimately going to be very bad for us. I mean, like a very simple example of that would be, Imagine if in 2002, during the you know lead up to the Iraq War, if Spotify had existed then and podcasts had existed then, uh, and it had like really strict policies against misinformation, like some people were advocating for Rogan on Spotify. Who do you think would have been booted for misinformation? People who said there mm. really were weapons of mass destruction in right. Iraq or people who said that right. was a lie? Now, that's a great example. Uh, we're talking with Ben Burgess. He is the host of the uh, Give Them an Argument podcast and uh, the author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. What, one of the areas that people on the right uh, point to as a particularly well, egregious instance of um, suppression of free speech mm-hmm is Twitter's handling of the New York Post story on Hunter mm-hmm. Biden. They would not allow that uh, to be spread. It, what about something like that? Uh, would, you have, um, would you have been okay with uh, allowing the New York Post editor to share that article on Twitter and on social media in general? Yeah, absolutely. Have, I, 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 think it's, I, I actually think it's an incredibly disturbing precedent that, uh, that a real news story you know, was, uh, was, was blocked in that way, you know, kind of at the behest of, uh, you know, of, uh, of, a powerful, you know, of a powerful person. And I could actually understand. I, I actually think if like, somebody who's a conservative or a libertarian said they were fine with Twitter doing that, I could understand because they could say, well, that's a private company that could do whatever mm-hmm. they want. But I think, I think that people on the left correctly understand that private companies could exercise a lot of power that, and that that's something that we should worry about. We shouldn't just say it's a private company, so whatever, there's nothing to see here. What about the suspension by Twitter and Facebook of Donald Trump? Is that something that you have an issue with? Yeah, I mean, I, I have concerns about that, too. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, I don't like Donald Trump. I think that the... Um, I think that he was lying about the uh, the about uh, 
you know, the election that uh, that he lost. And I do think he's at least morally responsible for inciting people about that. But, uh, yeah, I think that when this corporation sort of flexes this power that like, oh, we could even stop a sitting president of the United States from communicating with people. Yeah, that's a that's a precedent that worries me. I can imagine, you know, I can imagine circumstances under which like, uh, you know, President Bernie Sanders you know, ran afoul of the social media companies. I wouldn't like that either. How about something like a vaccine misinformation? That became a big issue where people were seeing their social media accounts suspended for putting out uh, inaccurate information about COVID or about COVID vaccines. Where do you come down on that one? Yeah. I mean, again, I, I, you know, I have, you know, I've got all three jabs. I've got my booster. I, I have. I think I would encourage everybody to get vaccinated. Uh, I think that the, you know, like the stuff that people are objected to when they're talking about COVID misinformation, I think is often real misinformation. But uh, I worry about making like Twitter, for example, the arbiter of truth, uh, because again, I don't, I don't trust them to to make the right calls. You know that the. Uh, every political argument is to some extent an argument about facts. It's never just right. about values. You know, we, we talked about the weapons of mass destruction example or even like even something as mundane as when people argue about, you know, you were talking about the death penalty earlier, whether the death penalty really deters crime or not. That's an argument about facts. You know, whether raising the minimum wage would lead to job loss or not, that's an argument about facts. You know, if some uh, you know, some workers at Amazon warehouse allege some horrible abusive labor practice, you know, that Right. Amazon uh, says it never happened. Who's to say if it did or not? Right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And and I don't trust um a few sort of billionaire tech CEOs to to make the right decision about that. And I, I think I'm willing to make the trade that, you know, sometimes people will say things that are false and might be really damaging, but I think that we're all still better off with more expansive free speech protections. I I certainly agree with uh, everything that you said. What about something that's a real uh, hot button issue, a real third rail about two years ago, Facebook came out and I think some of the other social media companies followed suit and they said they were going to prohibit any uh, posts on social media that uh, trafficked in Holocaust denial. Mm. If I wanted to put something on social media that um, provide, you know, uh, that put out evidence, you know, quote unquote mm-hmm. evidence that the Holocaust never happened, which we all know is not true, would you yeah. be okay with me doing that? Yeah, I mean, I think that again, uh, the, the issue is not like whether the substance of the view is is good or bad. I mean, anybody who said the Holocaust didn't happen, I think, is is disgusting. But um, but do we, you know, do we think that it's a good idea uh, to you know to have uh, to have the uh, the you know social media companies uh, be making these determinations? Also, keep in mind with an example like that that. You know, it's not like when they institute policies like this, it's not like there's some human being who's going to spend like an hour looking at any post that's flagged as violating the policy and deciding whether or not uh, it was, you know, it was a good flag. Uh, you know, mo- most of the stuff is going to be done by algorithms. Oftentimes it's pretty mindless. So they have, uh, they have, the algorithms have a hard time telling what's even a real example versus like, People will get uh, their videos taken down off mm. YouTube when they're debunking right. uh, COVID misinformation because they're using some of the right words, you know. And so, I mean, again, do, do I, you know, would I be happier if, you know, 
like no uh, Holocaust denial, you know, propaganda was being put out. Sure. But I think the question is like, do we, do we think it's worth it for having what's often going to be really heavy handed censorship sure. that might have other consequences down the line? Uh, talking with Ben Burgess. All right, uh, Ben, I got to save you here because uh, for people that have just heard the last 10 to 15 minutes of our discussion, they're writing letters to both the RNC and the Libertarian Party to nominate you as their presidential candidate in 2024. And uh, we know you don't want that to happen, to be nominated by the Republicans as, as a presidential candidate. So, um, Tell us what does the right do that suppresses yeah. free speech and uh, the free flow of information? Is the right guilty of, of the same kind of conduct? Absolutely, I think the right is guilty of the uh, the same kind of conduct. So, not only would people, you know, I mean, I don't, I don't think I'm going to beat Trump and DeSantis for that nomination for that nomination, <laughs> but uh, you know, not only because you know I support. Uh, I support Medicare for all and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But also because I think that the uh, I, I absolutely don't think that the right is serious about free speech. So I mean, just a couple of really quick examples. I think that if you look at um, I just mentioned Ron DeSantis, if you look at the the bill that is sometimes called don't don't say gay that was just passed in uh, in Florida or similarly, when you look at bills that are allegedly targeted uh, critical race theory. Uh, that have been introduced to different state legislatures uh, around uh, around the country. They're often very vague. Uh, I think that any teacher who knew what was good for them and wanted to keep their job, who's in a state where something like this passed, would be very worried about certain very broad topics that you know you don't want to discuss those in your classrooms because you don't think that you know you don't want somebody accusing you of doing uh, critical race theory or saying something that would touch on gender identity or sexual orientation in the uh, in the Florida example. And I think that, you know, I think that really shuts down critical thought that, you know, that you want a school system where people expose all sorts of ideas and, you know, they discuss them in the classroom and people could uh, people could make up their own uh, their own mind. Uh, I would also point out just on a really general level, if you when you think about the right and the free speech, look, when people are worried about getting punished for their speech, I mean, anything beyond just like having their Twitter account suspended in the United States, what are they really worried about? They're not worried about going to jail. I mean, like we live in a very unequal society. It's not very democratic in certain ways, but it's enough of a democracy. Nobody's worried about going to jail. What they're worried about is that, that they're going to get fired from their job. Well, uh, if, you know, if they say something that the boss doesn't like, well, if you're really concerned about that, if you take that seriously as a free speech issue, then you should be wildly pro-labor union. You should want every worker mm. to be a member of a union because when you're a member of a union, you actually have some due process. Uh, if you're uh, if you're going to get fired, you have a contract that says things about what you can and can't be fired for. There's an organization, the union, that can help represent you in that process. In fact, if it doesn't represent you, you can file suit against them uh, for failure to uh, – uh, for failure to represent, and it seems to me that when I look at the you know Republicans right now, uh, they seem to be very very concerned to uh, to undermine labor unions. If you you know if you look for example at the kinds of people that Donald Trump appointed to the National Labor Relations Board, uh, if you look at so-called right to work laws that have been passed in various states, you know I think that. If you want a society where people feel free to speak their mind and they're not going to get worried about being fired, I think all that stuff's the opposite of what you want. Uh, talking with Ben Burgess, he is the author of Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, a critique of the contemporary left. 
Hey, uh, you've been uh, pretty critical of James O'Keefe. James O'Keefe lives in our area. He's with Project Veritas, uh, sort of a um, self-described video muckraker. He he regularly listens to this show, might be listening right now. What's the matter with James O'Keefe? What's he doing wrong from your perspective? Yeah, well, I mean, that issue that I just talked about, I have an article about out in uh, Jacobin uh, Magazine about this. People could uh, could look up. It's called James O'Keefe uh, Doesn't Care About Free Speech. And it makes exactly this point with regard to a series of videos that O'Keefe did about the uh, New Jersey uh, Teachers Union, the main one, the New Jersey Education Association, uh, where they, you know, they seem to be very upset about, you know, how uh, they'd send hidden cameras into the New Jersey Teachers Union Convention, and some of it was just sort of minor bad behavior of the kind that you're going to find among any large group of people at a convention. I guarantee you that at CPAC or the RNC, you know, you'll find some people swearing or using casual, you know, or you know, uh, engaged in casual drug use at the convention, and so they found some of that. But also, uh, a lot of it seemed to be about teachers expressing these uncensored, very raw views about then New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. And uh, and it seemed like they were actually upset about the fact that uh, the New Jersey teachers unions being there allowed uh, allowed you know teachers to be less worried about uh, being fired and you know a little bit more willing to uh, to speak their mind. Again, I think that if you know that if they were genuinely in favor of free speech, uh, I think they would be. They would have the opposite priorities in many ways. I think they would be. Uh, I think they would be sending hidden cameras into meetings where Starbucks managers are plotting out union-busted strategy. Uh, just about out of time here, Ben. Two two final quick questions. One, um, I'm guessing Biden is not your first choice for 2024. Who is your first choice? Uh, <laughs> that is, yeah. Well, you're you're correct that Biden is not my first choice. I'm I'm worried that that could that could be a catastrophe, as I think anybody who's paid attention to. Uh, poll numbers is right now. Obviously, in 2020, my candidate was Bernie Sanders. I I doubt he's going to run again, which is a shame. I'm a huge fan, but if uh, if not, an interesting alternative might be John Fetterman if he wins his race against Dr. Oz. Okay, uh, John Fetterman. That's the first time I, I've heard that. And then lastly, uh, tell me how you view the situation in Ukraine um, when their conflict with Russia, namely the United States involvement. I know a lot of progressives were a little upset that uh, Bernie Sanders, who once published a recording of himself reading Eugene of Eugene Debs speech into the uh, congressional record. He voted, as did Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Rashida Tlaib, Cory Bush, and Jamal Bowen, for $40 billion in military and financial aid for Ukraine. How do you view the Ukraine situation generally and that vote specifically? Yeah, I actually have an article in Current Affairs magazine about this. It's called Congressional Progressives Need to Do Better on Foreign Policy, but that doesn't mean Republicans or Doves, where I argue that the people who Republicans, who some people hold up as being better on this, like you know Josh Howley, really aren't. Uh, but that said, I, I am very critical of that vote that you're talking about. I think that that's a lot of money going to the military-industrial complex that could be going towards healthcare and education. And I'm also very worried about U.S. involvement in general in uh, in the war in Ukraine because it's an incredibly dangerous situation. I mean, it's a war that involves the world's other major uh, nuclear power, and uh, this this could be this could be an absolute disaster. And so, when I see these headlines. Uh, like U.S. intelligence, you know, this is a, these were both in the New York Times. You know, U.S. intelligence sources brag about uh, helping to sink a Russian ship, helping to kill Russian generals. 
uh, I'm very worried about that, right? You know, because because I think that's I think that's really playing with fire. I think that I think that what Putin did in the Ukraine, you know, is currently doing in Ukraine is is disgusted. But I still think that uh, we'd be much better off mm. uh, with if if Biden and other Western leaders were trying ben, to engage in some kind of peace negotiations so ben, we can we, all step back from the brig. We have to leave it there. Uh, people could check out the Give Them an Argument podcast or the book, Canceling Comedians While the World Burns, Ben Burgess. Hopefully we could talk again soon, Ben. I like that. Thank you. Uh, if you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Well, I'm gonna write a little letter, I'm gonna mail it to my local DJ. Yeah, it's a jumping little record. I want my jockey to play. Roll over Beethoven. I gotta hear it again today. You know my temperature rising. The jukebox blowing the fuse. My heart beating rhythm and my soul keep a singing the blues. I love this song. Roll over Beethoven. Uh, Chuck Berry. Roll over Beethoven. You know what's great about this song? Is two things. I want you to listen. One is that Chuck Berry is careful to write lyrics. Listen to the lyrics. That tell a coherent story, which in this case, it follows a young, you know, it follows a young man as he pursues his favorite music. And the way he sings this, you know what makes this different from so much other music that's out there, even of that era? is you can understand what he's saying. He's delivering the lyrics clearly so a lot of folks can understand them. And here's something you may not know. Chuck Berry started writing this song to give his younger sister Lucy a hard time because she was always playing classical music on the family piano. Chuck was telling her to yield the instrument so that he could play rock and roll. Absolutely love it. Let me hear another 10 seconds of it. Obviously, the Beatles, years later, they, uh, they, they released a fun version of this song uh, as well. 800-848-9222. Coming up uh, in uh, our third hour, we are going to talk with Bob Wolf and Mark Erlenwein about some of the skills that uh, are not being taught in school. Speaking of schools, uh, there's a, a mom that um, actually alerted the authorities that her own son might have been planning one of these school shootings. I say good for this mom. Couldn't have been an easy thing for her to do, and she did it. We'll talk a little bit about school shootings uh, next hour. You know, it's funny. Speaking of Bob Wolf, I'm always reminded of, um, you know, a moment with Bob Wolf about uh, seven or eight years ago. I was producing John Gambling's radio show at another radio station, And, uh, you know, this was one of those times in my career as a producer, and this has happened a few different times, in fact, many times, where I'm producing multiple different shows. And there's just such a uh, there's just such pressure to come up with content for four, five, six, seven hours a day that a lot of times you don't necessarily go as carefully as you'd like to. So 
uh, John tells me that he wants to talk with uh, Robert Wolf. Now, this fellow, Bob Wolf, had already written to me separately about being on the show. Now, I didn't know that Robert that the Robert Wolf John Gambling wanted to talk to was this Democratic political strategist and, you know, big, big time financier that had also been on the radio a bunch of times. I thought he wanted this guy. So I ended up crafting questions in conjunction for John for a different Bob Wolf. So then whenever I see this Bob Wolf, he always talks about how surprised he was that that John Gambling interview didn't go better because John's asking him all sorts of stuff that Bob didn't know about. And then he's trying to gear his questions in another way. So that was always my, that's my experience with Bob Wolf. Those of you that are holding, we'll get to you after the top of the hour. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. I just shared this, uh, this article in the Wall Street Journal yesterday all about parents who call the police when they believe their child, it's, uh, it's usually a son, it's almost always a son, is about to be responsible for a school shooting. I just linked to it on my Facebook page. I don't know if you need... It's a Facebook.com slash Morano fan. You could read it on there. I don't know if you need a login or a subscription to the Wall Street Journal in order to access the article. I think the Wall Street Journal lets you access a handful of articles for free before they bang you out. But um, the headline is, their son is talking about school shootings, should they call the police? And it profiles these different families that have had to deal with this, including the Oklahoma family of Alania Vasquez. She reported her 14-year-old son to the police, and even when she did it, the enormity of that decision hadn't fully hit her. She had told a police officer who came to her apartment that she believed her son would hurt people, likely out of school. He had a growing obsession with guns and violence, and she had discovered him watching videos of school shootings. He'd been in trouble for making threats at school and bringing in a pocket knife. A teacher had overheard him telling classmates how to construct pipe bombs. He'd had an angry outburst. Officers searched her son's bedroom where they found his journal. Later, that we know this because it's in his arrest warrant. He wrote of committing a massacre, calling it destiny. He made threats about killing his mother, her boyfriend, and students and staff at an Oklahoma City school where he once attended classes. He listed who would live and who would die. He wrote that he would then kill himself. So police took her son to a hospital for mental health evaluation after this woman, a 42-year-old woman, signed an emergency order deeming him a danger. Can you imagine how difficult that must be for a parent? Now, uh, clearly, she did the right thing. I wish this lunatic in uh, Highland Park who was displaying every possible warning sign of uh, doing the same kind of thing. I wish that child's parent, or young man's father had done the same thing. But Ms. Vasquez, as difficult as this was, she said to the Wall Street Journal, 
I had to save all of us from what could happen in the future. I will do anything to make sure that my kid's safe and I'm safe and that the public is safe, and I won't apologize for that. So as mass shootings by young people have become more common, so have the questions asked afterwards, including by people like me. Were there signs of potential violence? Could someone have done something? These questions have grown more urgent after you look at what happened in Highland Park, Illinois, seven people killed. And in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 students and two teachers were killed. So for parents that are faced with troubling behavior, reporting their child to police for an act that they might commit is a tough call. You know, you fear for the consequences, emotional, social, legal, even after making the decision. I'm sure a lot of these parents wonder if they made the right thing. So um, it just really underscores that we're living in a new era. And one of the things that um, everybody tells you, but which I don't know that you really fully appreciate until it happens to you, is that you look at the world differently when you are a parent. And that's certainly the case for me. I'm a parent for all of seven months. And all I think about is what's going to happen when my child is in school. And the very distinct possibility that there could be a school shooting. Now, there school shootings still are very rare in the grand scheme of things. As common as they seem and as horrible as they are, they still are, in the grand scheme of things, very rare. Which leads me to this two-part question. If you're a parent, what do you do in terms of telling your child about the proper way to prepare for a school shooting, and if anything, and when do you begin having those conversations? Do you have those conversations at 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12? When, because you don't want... I remember when I was in kindergarten, we uh, I would take the school bus to school, and there were all these uh, safety regulations about how to get out of the school bus if there was a, if there was a, 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 a tip over or something. If it tipped over, there was an accident, they pointed to the emergency exits, and it would say, if the bus tips over, you do this. And I can remember every day that I took that school bus, I was terrified that that bus was going to tip over. Even though the chances of it were pretty remote, I, as a five-year-old or six-year-old, couldn't understand that intellectually. I thought these authority figures, these adults are telling me about what I need to do to prepare if that bus tips over. Or I remember there was like three or four other things. And I was really terrified of it. Literally, every day I took that bus, I was scared as a five-year-old or six-year-old. And then I remember there was one day in uh, first grade or so, maybe kindergarten, I don't remember, where uh, another child in our class was crying about something. I don't remember what it was. Probably just regular kindergarten nonsense. And the other kindergartners and I were speculating about why so-and-so was crying. And I said to this other kid, maybe he's afraid of the bus that he takes tipping over and getting into an accident. And the kid, the kid I was talking to, finished my sentence. Um, he finished the same kind of language that they used in the drill because he was afraid of it too. These drills did make us afraid of the school bus. So uh, how do you prepare your child? And at what age do you prepare your child?
for the possibility of a school shooting. 800-848-9222. And second question is, should there be school shooter drills? Is there a right way to do them? Because this mass shooting in Uvalde has added new fuel to long-running conversations about the drills that schools use to prepare for shootings, how to help students develop routines that they can rely on in case of a crisis, but without traumatizing them. And the other thing I wonder about is if these kids, and I wondered the same thing about the media coverage of these school shootings, and I said that I had concerns about this at the time, if these children are seeing school shooting drills or participating in school shooting drills every week or every month, let's say, does that put something in their head about a school shooting? I'm not even talking about terror. I'm talking about it. Does it give them the idea that maybe a school shooting is something that they, if they're disturbed or mentally off balance, might want to do? Lastly, I realize I'm throwing a lot at you here, and these are subjects that are usually way too weighty for me to be doing at uh, this time of the morning. Lastly, do these school shooting drills, if children are participating in them, do they make would-be school shooters more effective at beating the system? Um, you could take those questions any way you want. Uh, 800-848-9222. Um, how do you prepare your child, if you're a parent, for a school shooting? And at what age do you begin to prepare them? Should schools offer school shooting drills? Or does that have the com- the dual dangers of, one, traumatizing children, and, two, helping would-be school shooters have the idea of doing something like this? You have... On the one side, advocates for hardening schools, they've pushed for exercises that teach students how to jump out of classroom windows and even fight back by throwing objects like erasers and books at the attacker. In recent years, some school districts have even added elements to their drills intended to make them seem more like a real attack. The sound of real gunfire. Can you imagine that? There are school shooting drills in schools these days that have the sound of real gunfire. I don't know how I'd feel about my child participating in that. Uh, The officers firing blanks through school hallways and the use of prop or toy firearms. On the other side of the spectrum, some advocates for things like stricter gun laws have long questioned the value of these student drills, saying they put the burden of responding to gun violence on the backs of children whose school experiences have been changed by these routines. So after years of encouraging schools to better prepare for possible shootings, some states, and most recently Washington and New Jersey, have moved to more clearly define what sort of student drills are appropriate and effective. State lawmakers have sought to limit these realistic simulation, uh, these realistic simulations, which have drawn a lot of criticism from some safety experts, uh, experts and some child well-being researchers. What do you think? Uh, I, this is something where I don't even pretend to have an idea of what the right thing to do is. A new law in New Jersey signed in January 
before Uvalde, before um, Highland Park. I realize Highland Park was not a school shooting, but it was before all that. New law in New Jersey that was signed in January requires school drills to be age appropriate. Well, who's to determine that? It prohibits role playing. It prohibits the use of fake blood. It prohibits the use of real or prop firearms or the simulations of gunshots, explosions, or other sounds or visuals that may induce panic or a traumatic response from a student or school district employee. So is New Jersey going in the right direction? Is Washington going in the right direction? What do you think? School shootings, especially rampage-style attacks, as we saw in Texas, are, I, I can't stress, they are statistically rare. But a lot of good it does you if your child is in one of these statistically rare school shootings. The impact of this is so emotional that it drives school safety debates. And this is the discussion that parents and policymakers are having around the country. There were calls for action after shootings in Newtown, after shootings in Santa Fe, uh, Uvalde. There were calls for the broader use of school drills, and there were even some state laws that mandate them. Ninety-six percent of public schools reported having written procedures for active shooter drills last year. Ninety-eight percent of uh, schools reported procedures for lockdown drills, which is a term that some administrators use synonymously with active shooter drills. But there's a lot of variation in how educators and policymakers can use those terms. And um, there's a lot of debate about how realistic these drills should be. What say you? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Larry in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi, Frank. You know, I was disappointed that... uh, you, you pushed past the question. I would have rather you just left it at the question as why um, why are these things happening? And and um, I and I take issue with you saying they're exceedingly rare because I view why, that. Why say so they're statistically rare? No, I view that as a non sequitur because they they shouldn't be happening at all. If they happen once, it's something to be occupied with. But I don't think we have to take it all the way to school drills. Uh, kids should not even fathom and contemplate the possibility that this happens. We should be addressing rather why this happens, because I think the answer is in our face. And the answer basically is people don't care about other people these days. When they see a potential for violence, and by the way, that's why this father of the uh, Highland Park uh, shooter must be prosecuted, because this guy is an example of someone who didn't care, and because it was his son. So he thought he had a right not to care. But no, you don't have a right not to care whether it's your son, whether you're a, 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 a teacher, an official. You see a potential for violence. You have to speak out because the, the human species had gone, gone down. We've gone down as people. We don't care about other human beings anymore. We don't report violence. And that engenders violence. The apathy engenders. You know what? You know what people don't realize? These shooters... The number one reason they do this is for publicity. Well, They're not being given attention. So the same – let me finish. The same apathy that goes into not reporting is also affecting the shooters. That same apathy. Uh, well, you could be right, Larry. I, I don't know that that's the number one motive. I think there's a variety of motives, right? Um, 
and that's one of the things that I, I wonder about increased awareness of these school shootings, in whether it's in media coverage or in drills, especially with simulated gunfire. Does that lead to more school shootings? The answer is I don't know. But I'm not disputing what you said there about people treating each other worse, about lack of faith or whatever the case may be. I'm not disputing any of that. But as a school superintendent or as an administrator or as a parent, there's not a lot I can do beyond my household or my domain if I'm a school superintendent to improve that, right? You do still have to make policy as a either a school administrator, a teacher, a principal, or a parent about how to handle this. And what direction do we want to go? That's kind of the question that I'm hoping that we can drill down upon here. Uh, Pamela is in central New Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Yeah, um, hi. Uh, There's a a famous movie called Witness for the Prosecution where Charles Lawton plays a lawyer, and he addresses the jury, and he said, I want you not to think of a purple cow. Right. He starts out like that. And obviously, what's going to happen, you're going to think of a purple cow. And, of course, we have to address certain things, but we are so inundated with with violence and flashing in our face of news constantly. Um, I, I agree that the constant talk about it can encourage people who are on the edge to try to beat the system or to copycat, you know, to learn from it, you know, on how to beat the system or to encourage copycat behavior. And if you've had experience dealing with the public or, or teaching, you learn that you have to be very careful on how you address certain things because uh, children are, are sponges and they can take that information and, and go in all different directions. So um, when we used to have drills in the schools, I used to tell the, 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 the children because they would be you know, panicky afterwards. And I would tell them not to worry, depending upon what room I was in, in high school, it changed. I said, don't worry if something happens, you know, we have a window there. We can leave very calmly out that window and we walk away as fast as possible. And just that made them feel like, oh, you're in charge. You you, mm-hmm. you know what's up. You know, you know, and I said, but, you know, on the rare possibility, if it happens, you know, we, we don't worry about it. You know, we, we just listen to my instructions. There are ways to 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 dampen the um, excitement that some people get with violence and the talk about it. And and again, we, we have to dampen that in our society too. There's just too much of it, too much inundation. So it sounds it. like and Pamela, based on your experience, th- that's a vote against these drills and certainly these realistic style drills. Yeah, the constant bombardment is not healthy, is is not a healthy thing, because children shouldn't live like that. Hmm. Uh, uh, thank you, Pamela. 800-848-9222. Diana is in Manhattan. Hello. Hello. I completely disagree with your previous callers. Children are adaptable. And we have this odd Victorian idea, oh, children should be innocent. They should be protected from life. Life is brutal, and the earlier they learn that, the better. And I think that these realistic drills are wonderful, and here's why. Should, horror of horrors, an actual shooter come into a school, children conditioned by 
fake bullets, fake blood, fake jumping around, fake screaming, fake everything. We'll be less panicked. And I think the idea that children should throw books and everything else at a shooter, excellent idea. I think we have to stop thinking that children are living in some Victorian Paris so bad, you know, blowing bubbles and just as innocent as possible, when that is not the world they are in. You know, we are not little Lord Fauntleroy's. We do not live in a protected Victorian cocoon. We live in a very brutal, violent, deadly world. And the sooner they learn that, and the sooner they learn to defend themselves, the better it is. Is there a... um, What is the danger, in your view, Diana, though, of the two things that I express concern about? One... Um, understanding that maybe there is a great deal of value to having these children be better prepared with a more realistic simulation. Uh, What about the fact that these simulations could terrify them? At least some students that might... They would be more terrified if they were killed. Well, I I know. (laughs) They would be more terrified if their friends were killed right next to them. And and what about the, the possibility that just by doing these drills, you may plant the idea of a school shooting into a student's brain that might not have otherwise had it. And what if a purple cow flew over the moon? You, there are all sorts of what ifs. Yeah, uh, that's the, true. Well, I mean... It's like, an, it's like a, a boat drill aboard the Titanic. They should have had one. They didn't. Well, they also so didn't have go. enough life rafts for people, so that was certainly a, uh, a factor. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Konkuma. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Uh, great show. Um, I agree with Neil before. Um, a lot of people don't care. About, uh, that was Larry, uh, I think. Oh, Larry. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Um, our school district, I told you in the past, uh, um, Connect Watt School District, we have armed guards, metal detectors. You can't even get, Frank, when there's a holiday thing that we're going to during the day, you need to have your ID ready. They will, this, You have to walk through two sets of bulletproof glass. Um, kiosks before you can even get inside um, the schools. Uh, we have three security guards that are outside the building. They're armed. We have two in each school inside the building. Um, they do the um, drills. All our elementary schools are one level, and they have doors in each one of the classrooms. And my son tells me when they do the, um, the drills, they don't use any sort of gunshots. They use a bell, a bell tolls. They're being directed where it's happening. And most likely they go out the back door of the classroom and there's a bus and buses lined up. The kids are known to quickly remove themselves from the school, get on the school bus and follow directions from there. And it's well organized. All right, so how realistic do you think the shooting drills should be? Well, you know, the times we're living in right now, Frank, and these kids, what they're exposed to, it shouldn't be where they're hearing gunshots. But if they got to make it where these kids got to understand, this is, a, you know, some kids take this as a joking matter. Uh, last year, uh, when the kids started going back to school, uh, we got robocalls that the school is going to be closed because they got a credible threat that a child was going to come in and do a shooting in our school. And we completely, they shut all the schools down in the district until they apprehend the kid, which they do. 
And then they have, you know, they, they do tell the children, you know, report the kids. Um, I don't think they should go as far as the gunshots. Because, they you know, um, I think that's just too over the top. Especially with little kids in, like, kindergarten, first mm-hmm. grade. It's going to be All right. Uh, thank you, Joe. 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Obviously, a retired football player, a great football player. I've uh, had the opportunity to interview him, a very interesting guy as well. And um, right now, he is the man that uh, could determine which party controls the U.S. Senate. Uh, and look, obviously, a lot's been written over the last few years that he's become politically active over, um, you know, over his history, which is, you know, somewhat sordid. But um, yesterday, he had some uh, interesting things to say on the subject of the Green New Deal. And I do wonder if uh, he was talking about climate change at a forum in Georgia. And I do wonder if it's remarks like this, which could cause some independent voters that are not happy with the Democrats running things in Washington to cause them to go the other direction. Listen to Herschel Walker's remarks and then tell me analytically whether you like Herschel Walker as a Senate candidate or whether you don't like Herschel Walker. Do you think these comments are going to hurt his candidacy? And should they? Uh, this is Herschel Walker, I guess this is now two days ago, in Georgia. Yeah, he got rid of the pipeline. Get rid of the pipeline. Get rid of our energy start this downfall because we need energy for everything. Do y'all know that? And they were talking about the Green New Deal. You know, climate change. I'm going to help y'all with that real quickly, and I'm going to do it in the Wrightsville way so you can understand what I'm saying. (laughs) We, in America, have some of the cleanest air and cleanest water of anybody in the world. So what we do is we're going to put from the Green New Deal millions or billions of dollars cleaning our good air up. So all of a sudden China and India ain't putting nothing in their cleaning that situation up. So all their bad air is still there. But since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China, bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air got to move. So it moves over to our good air space. And now we got to clean that back up. So uh, if you couldn't make out what Herschel Walker said there, 
And again, this man could very well be in the United States Senate uh, by January. And uh, this is what he said. This is a quote. Since we don't control the air, our good air decided to float over to China's bad air. So when China gets our good air, their bad air got to move. So it moves over to our good airspace. Then now we have got to clean that back up. Now, either, you know, I need to get sent back to junior high school to learn a thing or two about how air works, or Herschel Walker has a misunderstanding of how good air decides to move into certain places. I'm curious, what is your take on this? 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to John in Freehold. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. It's a pleasure as always. Thank you. Um, yeah, I don't, I don't get how that air thing. Um, I was going to ask you, uh, did you happen to catch Tucker Carlson last night? I, I saw a little bit. I saw him uh, giving, um, I saw him giving Alexandria Ocasio Cortez a hard time, and I saw a little bit of the rest of the show. But I was mostly uh, watching the Met game. I was flipping between Tucker, the Met game, and trying to prepare for the show. So I did not see the whole show. Uh, so. Uh, what I found really interesting is um, he was talking, and Tucker only uses things that he can back up with facts and evidence. And he linked every corporation in America, every big corporation, China owns. And the whole thing with Joe Biden and Hunter um, spreading their uh, influence and everything, they've set it up so that China is actually moving to be the superpower of the world. And the United States is declining as a superpower. And I, I was just shocked by that because they, they literally let the, the gold mines and the, all the uh, in Afghanistan, like all the minerals and everything, they left it for the Chinese to take instead of us taking it yeah. and the weapons and everything. Well, so obviously, you know, I didn't see the the show or that particular segment, so I really can't comment on that. Issue specifically, but I think uh, China is very interested in being a G1. They don't want to be part of the G7. They want to be G- G1, the top dog uh, economically and in terms of every other measure of uh, how countries track progress. So um, I-, I haven't seen that. And I think if you look at how the Chinese government does things now, a lot of it is, you know, based on getting in bed with uh, corporations. Some of it's done with things like manipulating the currency. Some of it's done with things like uh, stealing intellectual property. Uh, some is done with uh, allowing, uh, you know, private sector entrepreneurs in China who grease the right politicians to be able to violate uh, any semblance of, um, you know, workplace or safety regulations. And, you know, to Herschel Walker's point, even if he's not right on good air and bad air moving this and that, they do pollute like like crazy. So it's not surprising to me that China would look to buy influence with a lot of American corporations. You know, the story we did yesterday about um, Ukraine and the Ukraine lobby and how effective the Ukraine lobby has been, I think that is a manual for any country in the world. 
Because now you see, if you want to get your way in Washington, the way to do that is not with um, bayonets, it's with billions. So if you can buy the right lobbyists and buy the right PR people to not only do outreach to policymakers, but to think tanks, academia, and media, you're going to be in a very a much better position to get your agenda enacted. And sometimes, you know, we've done whole segments on this where it's not just Hunter Biden. It's, it's bipartisan. People like Henry Kissinger, uh, people, uh, you know, who've been in government and the children of people that have been in government, they um, have no problem making deals with the Chinese. So I didn't see that specific segment. The last thing I'll say on the foreign, foreign policy front, is uh, about Sri Lanka. Uh, I don't know if you're watching what is going on in Sri Lanka, but it is scary. So uh, basically, the president says he's going to resign. They basically threw out the president. Sri Lanka has fallen, okay? On Saturday, you have thousands of protesters, and they're still there, storming the presidential palace. They're swimming in the presidential swimming pool, and you have this this angry and aggrieved, you know, group of people swimming in the president's pool. They had a cookout on the president's lawn. Imagine that. They lounged in the president's bed. They set fire to the president's residence. The president was, was you know, ferried away to a naval ship off the Sri Lanka, Sri Lanka coast. So the reason for the chaos is that the nation is bankrupt and suffering the worst financial crisis in decades. People are struggling. Millions are struggling to buy food, medicine, and fuel. So in a year, between June of 2021 and June of 2022, food prices rose by 80%. Now, imagine you as an American, who I imagine even the poorest among us is doing better than a middle-class Sri Lankan. Imagine you as an American have to deal with food prices going up 80%. Inflation in one year, you know, we're upset about 8% inflation. You know what inflation is in one year over there in Sri Lanka? 55%. So since the start of the pandemic, half a million people have fallen into poverty. So if you've never really paid attention to Sri Lanka before, which is, I'm embarrassed to tell you, I really didn't know where Sri Lanka was, but it's off the southeastern coast of India. You might think this is just what goes on in developing nations. That's not true. The truth is that Sri Lanka had been gradually rebuilding itself after decades of civil war. And then this happened. And unfortunately, the sad truth is we in the West had a lot to do with this. And Michael Schellenberger had an interesting column on this. So um, the underlying reason for the fall of Sri Lanka is that its leaders, starting with the former president and continuing with the current president, They fell under the spell of Western elites peddling this organic agriculture and ESG, which refers to investments made following supposedly higher environmental, social, and governance criteria. Sri Lanka had a near-perfect ESG score of 98. That's higher than Sweden, which is 96, higher than the United States, which is 51. What does that mean? What does that mean, having such a high ESG score? In short, it meant that Sri Lanka's 2 million farmers were forced to stop using fertilizers and pesticides, laying waste to their critical agriculture sector. Never mind that Tesla has been booted from the ESG S&P index while ExxonMobil is in the top 10. None of that makes sense. 
So there were other factors behind Sri Lanka's fall. Obviously, the COVID lockdowns were a disaster for them. There was a bombing there three years ago, which significantly hurt tourism. People don't like to go to countries where there are all sorts of bombings. An industry that usually, uh, for tourism for them, generates between 3 and $5 billion a year. Sri Lanka racked up huge foreign debt. And you know who was there to lend them the money? China. China stepped in. They lent the country billions of dollars as part of this Belt and Road Initiative. Transportation costs have rocketed 128% since May due to rising fuel prices. Overall, there's all sorts of trends. Since 2012, the population has been in decline. But the biggest problem was Sri Lanka's ban on chemical fertilizers, which passed last year, and it was central to the country's effort to comply with ESG. These numbers are shocking. A third of Sri Lanka's farmlands were dormant in 2021 due to this fertilizer ban. A third. Over 90% of Sri Lanka's farmers had used chemical fertilizers before they were banned. After they were banned, an astonishing 85% experienced crop losses. Rice production fell 20% and prices went up 50% in in just six months. Sri Lanka had to import $450 million worth of rice despite having been totally self-sufficient just months earlier. So what does that mean? Price of carrots and tomatoes rise fivefold. All this had a dramatic impact on the more than 15 million on more than 15 million of the country's 22 million people because they were all 15 million of them anyway were either directly or indirectly dependent on farming and things were worse for smaller farmers. There's one region where the majority of farmers operate two and a half acre lots. Families reported 50 to 60 percent reductions in their harvest before the ban. This was one of the biggest markets in the country with tons and tons of rice and vegetables. That's what one farmer said, and that's quoted in this Michael Schellenberger piece. But after the ban, it became almost zero. If you talk to the rice mills, they don't have any stock because people's harvest dropped so much. The income of the whole community has dropped to an extremely Low level. So this fertilizer ban starting in April of 2021 changed everything, changed the whole course of this country's history. Four months after the ban took effect, the president, realizing that things were not going according to plan, lifted the ban on the import of chemical fertilizers and then two days later reinstated it. So these results have been absolutely devastating. And you're seeing um, literal disaster over there in May of this year. Sri Lanka failed to pay $77 million on its foreign debt payments. Now, that may seem like not a big number in the grand scheme of things, but this default made it harder for Sri Lanka to borrow any more money. So it devalued its currency. Inflation rose 30% and the government ran out of money. So it needed to import fuel, food, and medicine. Try doing that without any money. So what's the president thinking? What were the Sri Lankan leaders thinking Why did they engage in such a radical experiment? Well, after World War II, Sri Lanka, like a lot of poor countries, subsidized farmers to transition from biofertilizers like manure to chemical fertilizers. And um, as these yields rose, you you saw rice yields rise quickly, and the nation became 
uh, the nation overcame all sorts of food shortages and started earning foreign revenue through the export of things like tea, things like rubber. And so as these yields rose, young people were able to get jobs in cities. Salaries increased so much so that Sri Lanka became a middle-class country again. But what looked like a dream to Sri Lankans looked like a nightmare to those of us in the West. In the 70s, Stanford biologist Paul Ehrlich and a lot of other activists raged against this green revolution. They claimed that overpopulation would cause mass death and suffering and that humankind needed to play triage. In other words, and Schellenberger's words specifically, we had to let some people die so the rest of us could live. So the pressure that Sri Lanka was under to adhere to this ESG, that is the root cause of this chaos that we're seeing there. 800-848-9222. Comment on whatever you see fit. We threw a lot at you there. Uh, Let me say hello to Tom in Forest Hills. Hello, Tom. Yeah, hi, Frank. Good morning. Uh, I just wanted to make a comment regarding Herschel Walker, the way he delivered his point to his audience. If you listen carefully, uh, there are a little chuckles back there. He was making these people realize that this whole Green New Deal and the climate control and all sort of nonsense that's being uh, thrown at us uh, worldwide is totally ridiculous. So he came out in a way where he made these people realize how nonsensical this whole theory is. That, that's my take. All right, so you think he was um, being uh, using satire, I guess. Exactly. He was satirical, right? Okay. All right. Hey, that's uh, as good of an explanation as I've heard. Mike in New Hyde Park. Hello. Firstly, um, Herschel Walker, I agree with Tom. He was being sarcastic because this Green New Deal mentality is ridiculous. It's not just Sri Lanka. It's happening in Ghana, West Africa. It's happening in the Netherlands. They're revolting. Um to put Sri Lanka in context, I, I work with a woman who actually is from Sri Lanka. I get daily updates on what's going on there. It's it's insane. Um, I know you're a science fiction fan. Sri Lanka is where famed author Arthur C. Clarke lived out his last yes, years. Yes, no, I know that. In, in Sri Lanka. But th- in other words, this is uh, – Herschel Walker was being sarcastic because this is insane – What's going on with this Green New Deal stuff? It absolutely makes no sense at all, and it's happening all over the world, Frank. Thank you, Mike. 800-848-9222. Leo is on the Upper West Side. Hello, Leo. Hi, Frank. Good morning. Morning. I have a comment on the on the original subject of the evening. I don't think, unless you, uh, when you're talking about harvesting, uh, body parts of these on the, on a death row. Unless you're planning our country going either way fascist or communist, it's not going to work in a mandatory way. But if that would be uh, voluntarily, time is always factor in these people. They 10, 15 years on the death row, mm-hmm. but when it's getting closer, they would try to delay it. If you would make, a, let's say, maximum how you can delay it, is the three years, and you would say you can delay your execution by one year if you donate one liver. If you donate your eyes after your execution, you can do it up to three years. There would be maximum limit. 
you probably can get better results than with some mandatory way. You know, Leo, that's but, um, that's way, not 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 Morano way. Okay, yeah, oh, fair enough, Leo. That's not a bad suggestion, actually. I kind of like that uh, as a good stopgap, maybe a good compromise. Alyssa is in Manhattan. Hello, Alyssa. Hey, Frank, how are you? Good. Um, I hope I can still comment on the uh, school shooting. It's your dime, Alyssa. Comment on anything you like. All right. I wanted to respond because I strongly disagreed with your caller, Diana. Um, You know, one thing she neglected to take into account about young children is that first, their brains are not fully formulated yet. So they're not emotionally equipped to deal with certain levels of trauma. And also, they don't have the life experience that goes along with that. So by, you know, just shoving at them and saying, oh, yeah, you know, this is the way it is. You know, even though we live in the world that we live in, I think it's really up to the adults to find a way to protect them. So what would you do? Uh, Let's say as both in a school administrator, if you're in their shoes or just in the shoes of a parent, what do you do in both cases? Okay, what I would do, what I came up with, this was an idea that just occurred to me when I was thinking about this, is that what you want to do is should a shooter be on the premises, they need, first of all, that that stuff about coming out and throwing stuff at the shooter, you're just going to end up with a dead kid because you've got a kid throwing an eraser at a guy with an AR-15. Give me a break. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is not Matilda. All right, where you're throwing the, you know, the racers at the mean principal. All right, this is a guy with an AR-15 with bullets that will kill you. And that's, he'll just, you know, shoot the kid and you'll have a dead kid. So I absolutely do not agree that the kid should engage the shooter in any way. What I would do is the government propose putting money into the schools to make them safer. Now, what they should do, at least with the younger ones, the older ones, I'm not so sure about yet, they are older, though, so like they may be able to understand this a bit more. But the younger ones, say from kindergarten through fourth grade, what I would do is in every school, I would have built-in cubbies in the walls that they can climb into, okay, and bulletproof doors or bulletproof people. Like they put bulletproof glass in banks. So, you know, a door that they can close that will protect them. I like I like the idea, Alyssa. I mean, it strikes me as good. So needless to say, these simulations with things like live gunfire and prop guns, you don't think that's helpful, especially for younger children. What I think is you're you know, we've already got a depression problem. Mm. Tell young children and you you're a father yourself. Can you see yourself telling your son when he's five or six? Uh, that you know he could very well die. Well, no, that that's why I wonder. And, you know, and if, wondering how that you know, like he's not going to get depressed about this. Yeah. I mean, you said you were afraid, but a lot of children process this in a way where they become depressed, like they they become hopeless. I don't think that when you're, I think possibly they might show these young children films that aren't like a film once or twice a year that isn't too graphic, and instead of saying a bad person is here. And they're going to shoot you instead of saying you'll get killed, you may get hurt. And this is what you have to do so you don't get hurt. Yeah. No, Alyssa, I like uh, I like the way you're thinking. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment on any of the subjects that we've brought to your attention. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. 
The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, coming up in just a minute, we have um, Bob Wolf and Mark Erlenwine. Very much looking forward to that. Uh, speaking of my son, Carmine, he is in full-fledged teething mode, and uh, it makes him unhappy a bit of the time. Seems like he's in pain. If you think about it, how uncomfortable must that be to have a tooth cut through your gums? I mean, that's got to be difficult. So anyway, we've gotten him these... Um, uh, I've, we've gotten him these, yesterday was the first day we gave him these teething crackers or teething cookies, which he seems to like. He seems to really be into uh, gumming them down. And, uh, you know, he got it. They're very, they almost like, look like long communion wafers, but apparently they're banana peach. But he seems to like these these crackers. He has got two teeth on his lower, you know, front lower lip. Or gums, front lower gums. These teeth are so sharp. He thinks nothing when I'm holding him of just uh, sticking my finger in his mouth and biting my finger with these two teeth, which are super sharp. I uh, have to give credit to his uh, babysitter, Lorraine, who found these two teeth. And uh, I don't know what the tradition was like, you know, in your family or your culture, but. I was always of the uh, school that whoever discovers a child's first teeth, they have to buy this child their uh, first pair of shoes. So I haven't had an opportunity to um, have that conversation with Lorraine because I'm always sleeping when she's there. I do miss a lot when I'm sleeping. You know, they're, um, they, they keep trying to uh, – there's all these things that you have to do between 9 a.m. and 5 p.m. Like I have to call my uh, life insurance folks to finish a phone interview, and then by the time I'm ready to make this call, it's like six six thirty. I'm on. I, I I have no time before five o'clock. I don't know how anybody that works these hours. And if you're awake right now, maybe you can empathize. I don't know how anybody that works these hours has any time to do anything at a normal business hour every day. You know, my car lease is coming up every day. The folks that leased me my car are calling me during conventional business hours to have a conversation about renewing my car lease. And it's just, I don't know, I, no matter how much I try to motivate myself, I, I go to bed usually around 8 or so a.m., and I'll wake up maybe 2, 2.33. 2. I can't get all this stuff done between uh, 3 and 5. I can't do it. Uh, we need a world that's going to adjust to people with unconventional business hours. That's my take. All right, 800-848-9222. Peter is in the Bronx. Hello, Peter. 
Hey, how you doing tonight? Uh, listen, I just want to, there's something that most people don't know about in, in, in the United States. They need to depopulate the population of the United States for the wildlife concerns because, and I'm going to use New York as a ground zero for this. Uh, 500 years ago, if you were a bear in New York, you could make your way into Canada, Pennsylvania, and stay in the woods the whole time. That's no longer the way it is. If you're a bear, you're confined now into an area, and it's and it's happening all because uh, we've built up the country that now in the next 50 years, bears and other wildlife are going to start inbreeding. So they need to depopulate this country, and then we start returning it into normal wildlife. And New York City, you keep the best of the neighborhoods. And this is after the depop- You keep the pe- best of the neighborhoods, and then you turn everything back to natural forestation. They, they talk about they want a world population of 500 million. And, and you know, I mean, I, I, I think you're, that you're seeing the beginning. Let's start doing things to get the population of the earth down. Peter, uh, thank you. I'm not really sure. I, I, I'm not sure I agree, to be honest. You, you kind of lost me, I'll be honest. But uh, I don't, I've never pretended to be that bright. Hey, uh, speaking of world populations and animal populations, in the words of the great Bob Barker, you can help control the pet population by getting your dog or cat spayed or neutered. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I am Frank Morano. I am uh, very, very pleased uh, to be joined by someone that uh, a lot of folks believe has the best voice in all of radio. Uh, But I am uh, pleased to be joined again by him in studio, not because of uh, how melodious his voice sounds, but because of the substance of what he has to say, because he is on a mission to teach a bunch of skills that are becoming more needed than ever. They've always been needed, and they're in short supply. A very, very pleased to welcome back Bob Wolf, a college and career skills readiness trainer with Hope Skills. Bob, it is great to see you again. It's wonderful to be back here, Frank, and um, thank you for that kind introduction. And yes, our young people need to learn to do what we're doing right now. And you are where we are joined as well by Mark Erlenwine, who was the principal of a high school that objectively is probably one of the best high schools in the entire country, Staten Island Tech, and uh, he also happens to have been New York's 2022 Principal of the Year. Uh, Mark, congratulations on that. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much, Frank. Uh, good morning, and thank you for having Bob and I. It's such a pleasure to to be here and finally meet you in person. No, well, it's uh, the pleasure is uh, is all mine. Hey, how does someone uh, get to be the principal of the year? What did you do at uh, Staten Island Tech that's so great? <laughs> well, um, it's been a lifelong journey. Been twenty five years at Staten Island Tech, uh, but once upon a time I was a student there, uh, class of nineteen ninety two. So as an alumnus and uh, having spent twenty five years there, the past ten as principal, 
Uh, I think the most important job of a principal, two things. Um, If you don't tell your story, others will tell it for you. So the storyteller-in-chief is an important job in sharing our mission and what we do. Um, But the listener-in-chief is really the more important of those jobs. And I think uh, the collective result of this acknowledgement, this award, is a, is a byproduct of spending a lot of time listening to what our students, faculty, staff, um, our prospective students, and the workforce are saying that our students need to, to really be ready for the life and the world ahead of them. When you say uh, the story that you tell is important, and if you don't tell it, someone else will, you mean the story that you tell to students, to faculty, to parents, to the, the outside world, to whom? Yeah, I, I think uh, part of the reason why we're here today is, is really – what I'm referring to is those communication skills. Um, schools uh, come under lots of criticism for different sorts of reasons all the time. Um, and you know, as the principal, uh, who's really got the finger on the pulse of everything happening uh, in the world and how that impacts your school, uh, it's really important to set the tone and, and model for the students. Uh, similar to what you were talking about, Mr. Burgess, you know, in mm-hmm. the previous segment, uh, teaching students how to properly communicate and share different perspectives and stories um, that impact our school community and serving as that role model. Uh, it has to start somewhere. And how we do that effectively as adults and teach the kids is a part of that responsibility. Yeah, and, and for people the listening in from around the country, uh, people should understand Staten Island Tech really is the home of the uh, some of the best and the brightest. It really is viewed as one of the best schools in the whole country. I could not get into that uh, school. And you know what I took issue with as a middle schooler? You know, I did very well in sixth grade, very well in eighth grade. Seventh grade, I had a little bit of an off year. Uh, but I thought if I could take the the test in eighth grade that I could still get in. But my because I didn't have over a 90 average or something in seventh grade, I couldn't take the test in eighth grade. Now, I, I don't know if they've changed the criteria at all there, but I feel like I should have been able to take that test. <laughs> well, my whole life could have been different. I could have had a reputable job. Somewhere. I think the fact that we're sitting here together right now, things turned out pretty well. I and guess so. being a lifelong Staten Islander uh, for most of my life, remembering your early days on community access television, I said, at the end of the day, who you are and what, you know, your final goal and dream. Well, I appreciate that. Through, thank right? you. Uh, thank you. And, hey, by the way, what is the status of the specialized high schools these days? I know they've been – we've heard a lot about Bronx High School Science, yeah. Stuyvesant, and Brooklyn Tech and possible changes coming to their admission test. Uh, I know you do things a little bit differently, but uh, the, the issue of who gets into these specialized right. high schools has been very much hotly contested, debated, very controversial the last few years. What is the story now, is just so, so informationally, so folks Being one of those eight specialized high schools, we all utilize the same admissions process, the same test. Um, what's going to remain the same for the time being is that exam, but what's going to ultimately change? What what a What's been spoken about and talked about is the opportunity to expand the number of specialized high schools, to create more of them with a slightly different admissions policy that's not necessarily governed by the specialized high school admissions test or a one test entry uh, admissions process. So I, I think that's promising. You know, with the, the new mayor, our new school's chancellor, um, who are really dedicated and committed to expanding programs. And I think that one of the things that Bob and I work so closely on, this uh, exploration and expansion of uh, work-based learning and internships. I think that we have the most internships in New York City Department of Education this summer wow. being offered to students. And, like, these 
critical the skills we're going to talk about today, HICA skills, human interaction, knowledge applied, soft skills, people skills, all that, all those things are so important in making these types of programs Absolutely. successful. Uh, that's Mark Erlenwein. He is the uh, the principal of the year, and uh, he's at Staten Island Tech. Uh, we're joined as well by uh, Bob Wolf. Bob, it's been a while since I had you in studio. Mark alluded to these HICA skills. Uh, remind folks who are hearing you for the first time or may not remember our previous conversations, remind us what it is you actually do and tell us what HICA skills are. Well, what I do is... Um explain the five basic skills that we all use every single day of our life to students in high school, college, middle school, and now all of a sudden elementary school. The skills that we are getting to use when we make a first impression, when we uh, have interpersonal skills with people, interact with them, when we communicate in the multiple ways we do that, when we present something to someone, and when we sell. The purpose of what I do is to take five skills and make the students and the parents understand that they are the number one set of skills we all use every single day of our life, and we don't teach them in most schools. And HICA skills came about because I was using the term hope skills for a long time, but hope, the word, just continues to appear all over the place. And I finally said, let me be more specific. Let me use my acronym KISS. Keep it simple and specific, Bob. And what are these skills really? Well, they're human interaction and knowledge applied. We talk about information access through the Internet, but information and knowledge are two different things. Knowledge is when you take information and you apply it. You use it in your experiences with other people and through other people. So the HICA skill concept was an interesting, simple acronym to have people to let people remember, who is this guy, Bob Wolf, and what are these skills? Well, first of all, they're the number one skill to deal with the number one resource in life that we all have, which is people. The number one resource in life is people. This is what I'm explaining to these kids today, students, graduates, etc. We have five we all have five resources in life. Academics and school, technology, experience. We have uh, the opportunity of uh, writing skills, but the most important resource of all is other people. I'm sitting here because we knew someone, you and I, who introduced us. And you cannot be successful in life without other people helping you and walking you through and navigate your career path, whatever it may be. And I loved when Mark was talking with you about you couldn't get into the school and look what's happened to your life now. Um, If we took the number of people that we all know and put them on a piece of paper who have helped us in our life, Mm. it would be a fascinating study, which is what I do with college students now. You know, it's funny. You're so right. And I was recently on a um, on a panel of other talk show hosts offering uh, career guidance to would be talk show hosts. And that was one of the things that I stressed. And I pointed to my own example of uh, of forging a relationship with uh, with John Katsimatidis. And had I not done that, you know, as good as I may be on the radio or not good as I might be on the radio, I wouldn't be here. But for, um, you know, building these relationships, not only with John, but with uh, with uh, a whole va- a bunch of folks. Now, so beyond the acronym, when we talk about HICA skills, is it just is it broadly could it broadly be defined as the manner in which people deal with other people? It's a very simple. They used to be called people skills, which when I grew up, that's what they were called. But no one knew what, no one knew what they meant. No one could define them. 
And the, and then they became known, I don't know, maybe seven or eight years ago, soft skills, which drove me up a wall. Um, something that's soft is not considered to be too intensely helpful in your life. It's not powerful. It's not strong. It doesn't lend a foundation. So I didn't like the term soft skills, but they're still being used today. And so for me, I call them hope skills, and the acronym was help other people excel. My My passion for 22 years is helping kids understand that the more people they know, the more people that are willing to help them in some way, the more people they meet and earn support from, the more effective they will be navigating their career path because they also do not know what a career path is. Mark, when we talk about uh, people skills, hope skills, soft skills, however people want to use different terminology to define these same HICA skills, um, why is that so important? A lot of folks are going to be listening. Uh, they know you're the principal of one of the foremost engineering uh, schools in the world where they teach uh, science and math and Russian and Chinese and all sorts of things that are important for high schoolers to know as they go into college and are trying to be competitive on the world sca- stage. Why is it important to know how to talk to folks? Why is that so important? So as I was alluding to before, being the listener-in-chief and taking really note, close note of our students coming into the building and our workforce partners telling us, uh, and colleges, you know, what exactly do uh, students need to be successful in college and career? And the, the one thing that continually and consistently comes up is people skills. So when Bob and I met back in 2015, because uh, I was on this journey and this mission of figuring this out and figuring out how to operationalize uh, and the mechanics behind teaching these skills in schools. Because coming out of the pandemic, um, we hear the term social-emotional learning, S-E-L, that acronym quite often. And it's something we're all, you know, schools are doing quite well with. But I think the thing that's overlooked the most is the S, Mm. S-E-L, social. Um, The social skills, uh, I think sometimes we like to think we're teaching them, effectively or purposely or with intent, but they're byproducts of the process of teaching. So working with Bob and uh, hiring this wonderful teacher at Staten Island Tech, an alumnus, her name's Jennifer Fitzpatrick. She's our work-based learning coordinator. Her her job used to be um, developing people, human relations and HR, in developing people's people skills, interpersonal skills. So the idea of taking Bob's HICA skills and uh, this uh, Oracy curriculum in, in England and combine that oracy, so um, the ability to speak effectively. Um, In England, they actually have schools that just focus on this from K through 12. So taking those two ideas, bringing them together, we created a course called uh, Introduction to Talknology in Career Development that every ninth grader has to take at Staten Island Tech. And uh, it's taught by Ms. Fitzpatrick, who's the work-based learning coordinator. So after a, a year of taking this course, learning about interpersonal skills, first impression, presentation skills, uh, selling skills, um, building your own brand. And uh, going back to the earlier segment, like how do you carry yourself on social media? These things aren't being taught. Right. When we were growing up, you know, our, our families, we intrinsically took away from our families that experience of communicating effectively. Um, how do you make eye contact, shaking a hand? So we're actually teaching that in high school as a necessity, you know, starting in the ninth grade. Uh, and, and the wonderful kind of capstone of that all is at the end of the ninth grade, all these students, after learning these skills, get the opportunity to sign up for a, a paid internship 
and uh, in an area uh, of expertise maybe they're thinking about, a career that they want to try out while they're in high school, or maybe just work on a specific skill, like just getting better at communicating with people. So um, I think that's become the, the, larger, the large oversight SEL, this focus on SEL is just those specific social skills. Uh, people just tuning in, we're talking with Bob Wolf and uh, Mark Erlenwine. So, Mark, when you first hooked up with Bob back in 2005, were you aware that your students and the students you were working with were lacking in these skills and you were sort of, Bob emerged as you were searching for a solution in how to address these deficiencies? Yeah, leading a group of other principals on Staten Island who, um, had, we had, some of our schools have things called CTE programs, career and technical education programs, you know, formerly known as vocational programs. But they've morphed more into um, you know, a co-curricular, co-academic uh, kind of package of experiences for students that certify students. Uh, like McKee High School, for example, has an automotive program. So you can walk away with a technical certificate in, automo- um, in automotive Staten Island Tech has a pre-engineering uh, certificate that you earn in addition to graduating mm-hmm. high school. So these types of programs, when we came together, uh, we uh, created something at Staten Island Tech called CareerCon. And it was an all-inclusive event for all high school students on Staten Island. And Bob was the plenary speaker uh, talking about then hope skills. Uh, we wanted to use that as a starting point for the students who were joining us that day before they went throughout the building. We had the whole entire building filled with professionals from all walks of life. But we wanted to give students the frame of reference of why these HICA skills are so important. That's great. And then then survey the building and learn more about these careers. All right. We're going to uh, invite you to uh, ask a question or to call in to Bob Wolf or Mark Erlenwine. If you have questions about HICA skills and how they can be better utilized by both adults and children, uh, now's the time. These are the folks to ask. 800-848-9222. We're going to get into where we're headed as a society if uh, the place that we're now seeing on a social interactive front is two people interacting with one another while they keep staring at their mobile phone at all times, what does that mean for the future of human interaction? And if that's kind of the culture that you've coming that you're coming from academically, what does that mean for your uh, likely workplace life? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. That's Duran Duran singing Hungry Like the Wolf. We have the wolf himself in studio, Bob Wolf. He is a college and career skills readiness trainer. He goes all over the place teaching students and, in many cases, adults, the skills that are necessary to survive in the workplace and in society. And uh, it's not something that you can really measure on a standardized test, but in some ways it's even more uh, important than the skills that you can learn on a standardized test. I remember years ago, 
I was listening to uh, Rush Limbaugh, who, whatever people may think about his politics, was a an incredibly skilled uh, communicator and talk show host. And he, um, one particular day, this is over 20 years ago, is offering advice to a caller who wanted to pursue a career in talk radio. And I wanted to pursue a career in talk radio, so I feverishly wrote down every single uh, action item that Rush gave to this caller. And I, uh, I still have that piece of paper and I look at it just about every day. And the second piece of advice that Rush gave to this caller was learn how to read, write, and speak the English language to the best of your ability, because whether it's true or not, you convey to people the impression that you're much more intelligent than you're than you actually are. Uh, Bob, that would have fit in pretty well, I think with your whole mantra, right? Uh, it, it it did, Frank, and what's very rewarding, considering we are seeing difficulties today with technology overpowering some of these basic five skills, is the feedback that comes from the students and the teachers and the parents. And they're all saying, we desperately need our kids to learn how to speak properly. We need them to understand the importance of networking. What is it? So I've learned also, in addition to teaching the five skills, I have to define the terminology that I'm using. Mm. Um, We talked about a career path. Well, I've had 13 jobs in my career. And one student said to me in the eighth grade years ago, Bob, you think you're successful with 13 jobs? And I said, absolutely. And I went and shook his hand. And he said, why? I said, because each one of those jobs taught me something about myself, taught me about the things I did well, what I didn't do well, what I wanted to wear, what I didn't want to wear. So these kids today are coming out of school unprepared for the workplace, unprepared for the workplace because they don't know that they're going to have 12 to 15 jobs according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. That's not me. And when they hear that, they go, wow, one student last week from EOC where I work now in Nassau County asked the question after I spoke to the high school group. He said to me, after I told him about all my jobs and the problems and being fired and my partner dying the next day after we started a business. He said, Bob, how did you survive all of those things in your life and still consider yourself a success? And I said to him, what a great question. I said, because I knew from the very first job I had as a busboy that if I did a good job, people would appreciate that. And what I will tell these kids, and I think I would tell on a parent, because parents can be an issue as well, I'd say people see things in you that you don't see in yourself. They recognize your capability. You don't know how good. We have problems today with these kids not feeling good about themselves. Their self-esteem, their self-confidence is terribly messed up with some of the social media that we deal with right now. So the reality is I define terms that they don't know. And you're, you're using the word career. They don't know what it means. The definition of a career is one's progress through life or in a particular vocation. And then they say, well, what's a vocation? And I'm going, wow. So I'm really trying to come with it with a basic primer dictionary of not only what the skills are, and there's five ways you communicate, there's five ways you make a first impression. It's not one thing. Mm. And they're looking at me with this look on their face, and they're saying, really? All of that? And I'm pleased with the written feedback. My Phenomenological data feedback for 21 years is getting written feedback comment forms from kids and teachers and parents. And um, they're all saying the same thing. 
why am I not learning this earlier? Uh, by the way, if people do want to get in touch with you or learn more about some of the uh, skills that we're talking about or the services that you offer, what's the best way for folks to get in touch with you? They can go to my website, hopeskills.com, and see who I am or what I do and see each of the skills, or they can pick up the telephone and give me a buzz at 516-639-5515, or they'll see me on Twitter once in a while. I find that I do a little less on social media today because I'd much rather be in front of a group mm-hmm. of kids or adults and parents who need to understand how valuable what I'm doing is. Hopeskills.com if you want to get a hold of Bob. 800-848-9222 if you want to talk to us this hour. That's 1-800-848-9222. One of my uh, favorite actors and probably one of my favorite people in general is uh, Alan Alda. He's done so many uh, great things that I have enjoyed as an actor, as a podcaster, and just as a, as a personality. One of the things that he's doing now, which I really get a kick out of, is he is uh, teaching a series of courses. He has a whole program at both Stony Brook University and the University of Chicago, maybe other places as well, where he's teaching scientists how to communicate better because scientists know a lot about science, but they may not know how to uh, talk to a member of Congress that they need to fund their research or a grant writer or something else. This is uh, Alan Alda on uh, MSNBC's Morning Joe a couple of years ago talking about a kind, the kind of work they're doing at schools like Stony Brook and the University of Chicago. And I've heard, I've heard from several members of Congress that they cannot understand scientists when they come to present their work to them and look and look for funding. Why would you give money to somebody whose work you don't understand? Doesn't make sense. So, so what do you? What so do you what, do we, he, what we do? We don't only work on them. We don't. We in, in, improvisation is an innovative way to help them relate to the people they're talking to, and so that gets a lot of attention because it's innovative. But we also teach writing and all forms of writing. As far as you're concerned, Mark, and Mark Erlenwine is here. He's the principal of uh, Staten Island Tech, a, a school that has produced some of the finest uh, science and engineering students in literally the entire world. Uh, do you, have you found that a problem with your students is they know science and engineering and the material that they're learning very well from a textbook, but they're not able to convey those ideas to the people that they need to convey them to? Yeah, so ha- having... Uh, pr- attended many of Alan Alda's uh, conferences with the World Science Festival. He's doing a lot of great work around that. I remember him talking about this exact challenge. Um, and this comes right back to directly serving the needs of the kids, right? Um, we were noticing really prominently just in talking with our workforce partners, the, the businesses that our students were doing internships with, and what are the areas and the skills that these students are lacking that they need extra support with? And that coupled with, you know, long before we started doing the work-based learning um, opportunities for students, uh, just noticing that we have this, these incredible students graduating from our school. They're going on to college, then they're going into careers. And having a very strong connection with our alumni base and asking them, what do we do right? What could we do better? Um, what's next that we need to know about? Um, so many of them came back to us and said, like, I just can't land that first job. I can't, I just don't have um, acuity to sit there and interview and deliver the brilliance that they have and possess and their, you know, their natural gifts that they were born with and cultivated is having such a hard time uh, articulating that. So that's when we made that decision is like, we have to figure this out. 
and hire somebody who knows how to do this and teach it as a course. Bob, uh, these HICA skills, people skills, uh, the skills that uh, can help you be better prepared to go on an interview or talk about the you know academic coursework that you're seasoned in, these are skills that in a lot of respects are lacking in many adults, aren't they? It's sad for me to say this. However, I will say it. The kids are a reflection of their parents today. And basically, the ones that I'm talking with in high school and middle school, their mom and dad are screen-driven. There's some interesting statistics. There was a survey done in 2020 of 540 12- to 13-year-olds around the country and how much out-of-school time they are spending on a screen. And it was 7.4 hours a day looking at a screen. They took that same group and compared them in 2017, and they found... 3.8 hours a day. So in three years, they have doubled the amount of screen time, meaning phones and tablets and computers, Mm. but primarily phones. And their parents are doing the same thing. And there's a terrible article in 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 a paper, Newsday, four weeks ago, about suicides. And there was a father whose son was a terrific athlete and uh, had some difficulties with some bullying and some problem with kids in school and took to playing computer games in the basement, and the dad made a comment in the paper that just stuck with me. He said, we all use technology to parent sometimes. So one of the problems that I have is getting the parents to understand how important modeling the skills are. And Mark has used that term, and I've learned about it from dealing with schools. Uh, it's, It's fine to talk about it, but Mark just used the term interviewing. First of all, we're interviewing every day. And the opportunity to meet someone who can help hinder or hurt you, is one of my theories. You never know who they are. And I met Mark because one of the other principals on Staten Island had me in to speak to her cabinet. And after I was done there, Mark had sent one of his APs, uh, assistant principals, over. He went back to see Mark and said, Mark, uh, we better talk to this guy. So the other thing that really got me excited, and Mark can expand a little bit, MIT back in 2013 or thereabouts, offered a course to all incoming freshmen, mandatory, called Social Graces Charm School. And the the purpose was to teach four specific skills because their kids couldn't have, they're brilliant, they're brilliant academic students, couldn't have conversations at cocktail parties. But for me, what they made, they made me smile in my my home. The skills were make make a positive first impression, have strong interpersonal skills, be a great communicator, and know how to present yourself. And the only skill they left out of my five was the word selling skills. And for some reason, we have a, an, uh, we have a difficult time in education looking at the word selling as a career profession. I've said to professors in, in colleges, you've got some great selling skills. Oh, no, no I'm, I'm not a salesman. And I'm thinking, we're all salespeople. Mm. So when I ask kids that, these little 12 to 15-year-olds yesterday, I said, When you're selling, what are you selling most of all? And one kid said, myself. So the kids understand it. But we don't teach the school the the, the skills that I do. And I'm told this 
for 21 years. So, How do you think society, either of you who cares to hazard a guess to this, how do you think society got to a place where these skills, which are used so much more often than, say, uh, trigonometry and calculus, they have been the first ones that get ignored and deprioritized in training uh, the next generation of young adults? Mark, why don't you take that first, please? Yeah, I think working at Staten Island Technical High School for all these years and me personally, I consider myself a sort of technologist and always bringing the next cutting edge technology to our building and our students, especially industry-based tools. Like we have a TV studio production center where we're using you know the latest, the greatest, the most current tools that kids would need for those who want to go into that industry. But I think technology has evolved so quickly. And uh, we've adopted, like, I look, I look at the phone, I look at the tablets, and um, Staten Island Tech went one-to-one 10 years ago when I became principal, and uh, that was a challenge. What, to, what does that mean? So, I'm sorry. So one-to-one, so we brought we bought students iPads. Uh-huh. So one grade level at a time, we gave them a one-to-one device, and I think uh, you think about the timing on that 10 years ago. You know, the iPad is still a right. new animal in the wild, right? And we're handing these out to students. And I don't think anyone could ever really identify or realize um, what that was going to morph into, what that was going to turn into. And uh, the infusion of this technology in our students and children's everyday life, you know, right down, right down to a two-year-old who could use a cell phone better than some of the 40- and 50-year-olds. Um, it, it's really isolated students from this beautiful thing when people come together in person and you get to kind of read each other's body language. You know, the whole 4D experience of socialization was diminished. And, like, I think uh, the, the perfect uh, personification of this, of this problem, uh, came out of COVID. You know, just, the, you know, the sheer, the only option of remote learning extenuated now the biggest problem that we have with our children and even the adults. Um, so the more reliant we've become on technology, the less reliant we've, you know, there's high tech, low tech, uh, and no tech skills. So those, no, those non-technology analog skills, just basic you know, people skills, it, it's not as sexy as, you know, the latest Venice screen with the fastest processor um, and that, that ability, that illusion to stay connected when we're further apart than ever. I work with uh, several colleges, and the young man who's in charge of the media department at one of the colleges said to me when he was hired to do the media productions, he was told to make 10 to 12-minute segments to put out there about the promotion of the college and what it offered. Now they wanted to do a minute to a minute and a half segment. (laughs) He said the student's attention span has diminished to the point where they have no attention span anymore. And when we go back to the issue of solving problems in this world, um, it comes down to how well do you know the person you're trying to solve the problem with? And frankly, I know the people very well, like Mark Rillenwine and others that I've known for 15, 20 years because I've spent a great deal of time reading their body language, finding out whether they do the five words that matter the most in life, follow up and keep your word. So technology doesn't allow some of that. What they wait for in technology is the next click and the next like. That's the instantaneous gratification Mm. that technology brings, which in many ways is wonderful. It got me here tonight when she talked me through the traffic problems and we're avoiding the construction. That's wonderful. So technology by itself 
is a wonderful tool. But as someone once said, it's not the technology that's the problem. It's how we're using it. So all I'm looking for is a balance. I love technology. But when I'm told that we can't test for technology, we can't, Bob, I'm told we're not going to be interested in bringing you in because we can't quantify it. How can we test for what you do? And my answer is, you wait till the kids graduate and they can't get jobs. You wait for finding out that their self-confidence and self-esteem cause mm. is gone because they can't relate to people. They can't solve problems one-on-one. They pick up a phone and they type something into it. Well, I do that too, but I'm very, very good at developing a relationship that I know and you know and Mark knows takes time to earn. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to continue in just a moment with Bob Wolf and Mark Erlenwein. 800-848-9222. If you have questions, we have eight open lines. They're all yours. 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Frank Morano talking about Bob Wolf and uh, his mission to impart social skills that are all too lacking in society today to students and young adults. Um, He's joined in studio by Mark Erlenwein, the principal of one of the best schools in America and uh, the New York State 2022 Principal of the year, uh, before we uh, took a break, we were talking about the pandemic and how remote learning has hindered a lot of areas of development, including human interaction. How bad did uh, how badly did the pandemic hurt the kind of areas we're talking about? Just seeing how uh, responsive and thirsty our students were for that interaction and attention uh, once they returned last September, it was evident, and it was evident. You know, it's funny. I think about uh, when I first became principal. I took note of how trying to make eye contact with students, they wouldn't make eye contact with you. They're always looking down. So um, I bought these projectors, uh, mounted them on the ceiling, and aimed messages onto the floor, like for <laughs> upcoming events, because that's where the students were looking. And uh, over the past ten years, I've moved away further from that because now that we've started sure. teaching these skills. Uh, where we're encouraging students to make eye contact, um, get off the phone, take your ear pods off, have a conversation with your neighbor in the hallway on your way to class. Um, that is something that was largely missed. And I, I, it, the, the damage that was done through the isolation of the pandemic, just purely evident by seeing how thirsty the kids were for that, just that human interaction, that attention, um, we're lucky in that we were able to, because we've always been heavy on technology, that this seamless transition into remote learning, um, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say it was effortless, but it was very successful. Uh, but it still was that, that not having that human contact and staring at a screen full of just avatars or you know, 
empty, you know, empty spaces uh, was not conducive to what is intended by schools. Uh, Bob Wolf, and again, you can check out Bob's website at hopeskills.com. You can give us a call, 800-848-9222. I'm sure everybody, whether you're 7 or 70, can improve their use of HICA skills. But in terms of the most important age to learn the mastery of of these skills, if you can ever master it, what is it? Oh, is it 8? Is it 18? Is it 28? Is it 80? What, what is the most important age? Great question. When I started this program, it was go to colleges first because they were the first, they, they were the closest to the employment world. Graduate from college, look, get a job, interview. Then someone said to me, Bob, you need to take them to high school. Then transition, you need to take them to middle school. Then I went to ed camps and they said, Bob, what about elementary school? And I said, wait a minute, let's look at a skill first. So I now ask the kids, anybody here an athlete, play baseball, basketball, soccer, take a drama class, or uh, singing, dancing? They all raise their hands. I said, those are all skills. When did you learn those skills to where you are today and becoming as good as you are today? Were you 15, 16 years old? No, no, we learned there were two or three. So I'm of the opinion, and I've talked to some people who are in education and who are family counselors, that a skill is learned by simply training and practice. Kids are born learners. And when parents and and people give them a tablet at two versus talking to them and having a conversation, where do you think their interest is going to go? So the reality is I used to think Hope Skills in the beginning 22 years ago was best for college, but it has gone down now where I'm talking to kids that are six, seven, and eight years old. But more important than talking, I'm demonstrating. Powerful thing about what I'm doing, and Mark can do it, you can do it, Chris, who we just met, you can not only talk about them, you can demonstrate them. Because when I talk about powerful communication, what is the number one fear in this world? Uh, public speaking. Correct. So we have, we have classes today in high school that we call public speaking, and nobody takes it. Why? Because they're scared to death of it. So I talked to a teacher almost 15 years ago, and I said, change the name of the class. He said, well, from what to what? I said, call it talking and listening to others. I said, conversation 101, make it something that they are understanding they're going to do every single day. So um, I'm, I'm bucking a trend in a certain respect because when things are situated with these skill sets, the earlier you learn any skill, it doesn't matter what it is, the better. You know that, and I know that. Your self-confidence and your self-esteem, how you feel about yourself and what you think you can do is predicated upon when you learn that skill. I learned to do this without knowing when I was a busboy and a waiter, talking to people, smiling at them, being pleasant, being personable, having a personality that they enjoyed having call on them. And someone said to me, you know, Bob, you have an interesting voice. It took me till I was in my mid-30s being fired from a job to take voiceover commercial acting lessons because people said, you're, you're crazy, and you complimented me, and I greatly appreciate it. But I tell every student sitting in front of me with a tablet, you have a wonderful voice. More important, it's yours. When you pick up the phone to use it and make a phone call, people will recognize you simply by the way you sound. What are some of the common mistakes in the area of HICA skills that you've noticed in adults? And what's a pro tip that you could offer to an adult in our audience about how they can improve a key aspect in their own life and their own behavior on a daily basis? 
Well, I, I like to believe that uh, do as I do, not do, not do as I say. So speak time with your kids is good. Uh, sit down at the dinner table, have a conversation time. Make, put the phone away. No phones at the dinner table. Or on a Saturday afternoon from 2 to 3 in the afternoon. Or at the beach. No phones at the beach. What's amazing to me is how many parents, young parents especially, are using their tablets and their phones, and they're pushing their kids away when they're on the phone, in the car. I see it when I'm driving. So I was once told, um, I was asked a question by a parent uh, at a PTA meeting uh, because they couldn't get their daughter to make a phone call to the college to set up the interview application, the interview process. So there were five or six moms around, and... um, they're all agreeing and, and, and empathizing with this poor woman. My daughter wants me to make the phone call. She says, I know what I'm talking about, but mom, I don't. And so the woman looked at me and she said, Bob, come here for a minute. I said, yes. She said, what should I do? What would you do? I said, well, first of all, I don't parent other people's children. Second of all, I have two sons. If the one hadn't called Providence and the one hadn't called Holy Cross to mm. set up the interviews, I wouldn't have done it. And the answer I got back was, but what do I do? So it's a, I'm, I'm, I tread on thin ice when I try to – I don't tell parents how to raise their kids. Everyone is different. But their kids today, 92% of HR professionals today say college graduates are coming out of school without these so-called soft skills or my HICA skills. Mark, uh, any success stories that you could share with folks uh, based on – your experience at uh, Staten Island Tech and bringing Bob in to sort of train your students and how they can better utilize these skills in the world at large? Absolutely. Um, Recently, we've compiled uh, the data on how successful our work-based learning internship program has been. And it was funny, there was a meeting, a citywide meeting with people from the, the mayor's office and such, and they were trying to get a sense of how schools were leveraging these uh, work-based learning opportunities. Mm. So th- there's funds um, through the, uh, the Summer Youth Employment Program, Work, Learn, Grow. There's all these different ways in which a student can get paid for doing an internship type of experience. And um, they had a heat map that was showing, like, the number of, of work-based learning opportunities. So, like, our school on a typical summer will have anywhere between – 300 to 500 students, that's 40, 45% of our student population in paid internships um, every summer. And then during the school year, it's even more students. And uh, I'd rather much more see a student enroll in an internship at my school right now than an additional um, sure. advanced placement course, because I just think the, uh, the benefit and the long-term impact is much more important and meaningful uh, doing the internship. But I uh, just, the, uh, the SAT for how successful this is, the test for how successful this is, is talking directly to the colleges and my workforce partners on how are students doing in, in these skills. Because you can't give a test to, to assess that. You can only speak to the people who are hiring and working with your students to get a sense. And um, remembering where we came from, like the impetus for a lot of this came from seeing our students struggle at the borough president's sure. office, you know, Jim Otto's office, trying to present an idea for uh, the Richmond town uh, restoration area, mm. like a potential children's play zone and to uh, our school and another school were presenting and just watching my, my students um, wrestle with a microphone on who is going to talk next. And 
it was just evident that you know we, we really ha- we couldn't take these for granted and think the kids are just learning it through absorption. You know, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Al is in Manhattan. Hello there, Al. Good morning, Mr. Morano. Uh, two excellent guests, and I appreciate you have them uh, talking. And I want to say to Mr. Wolf, uh, uh, fantastic work you've done throughout these years. It's very noble what you're doing. Nobody's really doing it, and uh, you're helping these kids. They are the future, you know, whether we like it or not. Some of the ways they may act at times because, you know, just the way uh, the pressures they get. Can you imagine if they spent seven hours, just a fraction of that, on some of these skills or just any anything like that? And uh, the principal, uh, same thing. I think you're running an excellent program there, and I appreciate all your work. It's very noble, and uh, I appreciate it. All right? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Al. Uh, nothing more. I have nothing more to add there. I think that's uh, pretty important. Bob, you were telling me off air that uh, these days you're uh, you're having some interesting experiences dealing with eight to twelve year olds. What is the experience? How is the experience different in trying to teach eight to twelve year olds this stuff versus trying to teach a seventeen year old? Uh, I have more fun with eight to twelve year olds. <laughs> um, when I walk into a classroom of eight to twelve-year-olds, or even sometimes younger, um, the first thing I do is I make a little funny movement. And I, at my age, I can still move a little bit, and they wonder what I'm doing, and they're laughing at me. And they're, I get them laughing, and then I explain to them that I'm only here for one reason: to make your life better, and to make you enjoy what you're doing better. So, if you pay a little bit of attention, you will learn some things that I guarantee you will help you for the rest of your life. And then we start the handshaking, and I introduce myself to them. So their their eyes are opened. And some of the older ones in college and in high school and even graduate school, uh, they know it all. Well, we know how important that is, Bob. We, we know that. One student said to me, Bob, you keep talking about writing these handwritten thank you notes to people. Mark's got a story which he can tell you. But I tell them, if you'd like to, if someone does you a favor, send them a thank you note. How, oh, I say to them, how do you send a thank you to somebody? Well, we send them an email or a text. And I said, that's wonderful. And I take my little handwritten thank you note out, and I say, why don't you write them a little thank you note? And one kid actually said to me, Bob, do you know it takes five days for the mail to bring that thank you note to someone? And my text gets there like that, and my email gets there in two seconds. I said, if they read it. I said, I'm talking about making your first impression. You make a first impression with somebody, and they, they like you, and you like them. You go home, you sit down, you handwrite something that says simply, thank you for your time or thank you for the interview. If you don't hire me, remember, I'm a backup. I don't mind taking a second shot if you can get to me. And mail it. I said, what happens to you in five days? Do you show up again? They said, what do you mean? I said, well, when something comes in the mail, you can't delete an email. Right. You can't delete a stamp, yeah, rather. Right. You can, you can delete an email and a text, but you can't delete a stamp. Someone always opens that envelope, and they look at me. The sim- to me, I'm selling, Frank and, and Mark knows, I'm selling and offering common sense. It's from a generational point of view, and I understand that. My generation is different. We need to blend what I'm talking about, and we need to blend it with technology and use them all. Because, again, when 92% of the professionals of HR say we're not hiring people because they don't have soft skills, that's more important than the 15% that have hard skills. I'm going, is somebody listening? And that gentleman just said it. It doesn't take much time for a young person like yesterday. I can watch their faces. 
And when I talk about why did I ask you to look them in the eye and why did I say smile? And I have acronyms for a million. Smile means simply makes individuals less edgy. And they take me and they say, wow, that's interesting. I think if we make what we're teaching learnable in a way that's interesting and fun and applicable to their life today and tomorrow, and as I tell them forever, because I say, I hope you become as old as I am for the rest of your life, and you go through the things that I've gone through and meet the wonderful people I've met. And then the question is, of course, my age, and I don't. (laughs) They look at me and they they think I should be in a box. Uh, Mark, uh, first of all, if you had an anecdote about uh, thank you notes, please, please share that. And then... What are the sort of the cautionary tales? You mentioned the instance of um, your students not being able to uh, interact with policymakers effectively. But if people don't learn these skills, either as children or adults, what what are we doing to them in society? Yeah, um, the anecdote to Bob's point on the thank you notes, <clears throat> I vividly and fondly remember when we finished uh, a round of doing seminars with Bob in our school with our ninth, 10th, and 11th graders and um, we had had, you know, he's, one of the things he focuses on, the importance of a thank you note and a handwritten thank you note, you know, like a bouquet of flowers arriving at someone's office when that shows up. And uh, at our next faculty conference, you know, we, I always give an opportunity for faculty to share, you know, what's new, what's going on. And all these stories started to emerge of, like, for some reason, all the faculty were getting these thank you notes, unsolicited thank you notes from students, um, so when you talk about like, how do you measure success? How do you know you're making an impact with teaching these skills? So, so that was one of the points where, um, in presenting this, convincing our faculty that this works is it important. That was an indicator. I love it. Um, <laughs> HopeSkills.com is the website. Bob Wolf is the man. Mark Erlenwine is the principal. Uh, Staten Island Tech is the school. Gentlemen, it's always a treat to see you both. Thank you. Thank you very much, Frank. Uh, Thank you, Frank. We'll continue in mere moments. In the words of the great Bob Grant, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. We're not tired yet. A lot of you at this time, in this particular hour, are beginning your day rather than ending it. Some of you might be ending it, whatever the case may be. I know there are some folks that start their day with a shower and other folks that end their day with a shower or a bath, either one. I um, I kind of take my shower right in the middle of the day. So I wake up most days around 3 p.m. Eastern, and then I shower around 9 p.m. Eastern, maybe about 45 minutes or so before I leave to go to work. That's my standard methodology. And um, up until about seven or eight years ago, 
I would, and I forget what I based this on, I would wash my hair once every third day, once every fourth day, for a shampoo, maybe conditioner, maybe not. Didn't spend too much time thinking about it. And then um, about seven or eight years ago, I developed psoriasis, or I became aware of having psoriasis. And the place where I get it the most, where it's the most noticeable and the most irritating, is on my scalp. So I get scalp psoriasis. So I went to a dermatologist. He recommended all these different shampoos. And he said, you know, do a mix and match. And if you could shampoo daily, that would be the best thing. So that's what I do now. I use uh, three or four different shampoos, one prescription and a couple that are over-the-counter, all designed to treat different aspects of scalp psoriasis. That's my story. So I shampoo every day. Well, apparently this is yet another area where I am out of step with the trends. The Wall Street Journal, a day and a half ago, did a fascinating, I found it fascinating, article on the growing number of people that are joining what's called the no-poo movement. This is not a joke, but the no-poo movement is this growing community of men and women who are not using shampoo. Uh, For instance, they chronicle Laura Curtis Moss. It's been more than two years since she last shampooed her hair. This no-poo movement is a backlash against modern hair care. And making the switch evidently takes a lot of commitment with a few, pardon the pun, hair-raising weeks for converts and their families before the benefits start to shine through. So this woman... Ms. Curtis Moss, she wanted to use less plastic, and her scalp had been feeling dry and sore. So remote working during the pandemic gave her a chance to experiment. So she lathered up for a final time in early 2020 ahead of a job interview. And then came the hard part, and it was very tough for her at first. She said her hair looked greasy and unwashed for a few weeks. So then she pushed on, pushed on. Didn't break down and shampoo. About six months in, she realized that her hair was stronger and softer than before, probably in better condition than it ever had been. She now only washes with hot water. That's it. Just hot water with an occasional vinegar rinse after working outdoors to get rid of campfire and other smells. Her wife has not yet been converted And she's content to use a shampoo bar to reduce plastic waste. A lot of others are being drawn to this trend right now. There's uh, something called subreddit. And the no poo subreddit has nearly 350,000 members who compare notes, who share resources, and who support those that are struggling through these processes. There's a a whole TikTok community about this. These TikTok videos tagged no shampoo have notched roughly 55 million views. Glenda Folsom, 
a community coordinator at an elementary school in Pennsylvania. She swears by, listen to this, using a $200 hairbrush that she saved up for and two evenly beaten egg yolks to make her hair look fuller and shinier. This is what she said. This is a quote to the Wall Street Journal. I let it sit in my hair until it gets kind of gross. She's 40 years old, very attractive woman. The 40-year-old woman said she leaves it in for several minutes. She separates the yolks beforehand, or she risks slow cooking an egg in the hot water of the shower because egg whites cook at relatively low temperatures. I've noticed that because I sometimes I'll do just egg whites for breakfast. But the results, in her view, are worth it. After finishing by rinsing with apple cider vinegar, she is done. She says, I want to go out, leave town, and go somewhere and show it off. So you got people that rinse with vinegar. You have people that use egg yolks and then apple cider vinegar. A lot of other alternative methods that are out there involve rice water, chickpea, or rye flour. So why are people doing this? And by the way, if you're part of this no poo movement, I would love to hear from you. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. I am not, but I am, I don't think I could do this because I think this would lead to um, my scalp psoriasis getting worse if I stopped using all this medicated shampoo, but maybe, maybe I should try it because those who argue for this all natural approach, meaning no shampoo, they say that the chemicals in shampoo strip your hair of natural oils and that causes the scalp to overproduce them. They say this leads to a vicious cycle where people rely on shampoo and conditioner to fix problems created by those very products. Many no-pooers also balk at waste, uh, at the waste that's created in producing and packaging shampoo. I could buy that. So um, that is interesting. I've always heard that with uh, chiropractics. I've heard a lot of, uh, you know, you always feel better after you visit a chiropractor. They give you an adjustment. And then I've heard that if you then don't keep going to the chiropractor, then you don't feel better. It's not like you can go one time, get adjusted, and you're good. They make it so that you become chiropractic dependent. I don't know that to be the case. I'm saying I've heard that. I've heard the same thing about facials, that you got to get a facial. It gets rid of all the gunk in your face, on your pores, and then you have to always go for facials. Otherwise, I don't know, some bad stuff happens. Apparently, the no-pooers believe that's what happens with not shampooing. So this community, they've developed their own jargon. Co-wash means to use only conditioner. Uh, W-O, woe, stands for water only. Going low poo is the less intense option. It's to use it less frequency or choose a gentler shampoo without any sulfates. Ella Smith 30-year-old musician in California. She experimented with a host of remedies for nearly two months last year before giving up. Her boyfriend had been supportive as she went from one ingredient, such as cocoa powder, to the next. But he almost gagged when she came out of the shower after smearing 
her hair with eggs. She said, I smelled like scrambled eggs, which is good when you're walking into a house, but not when it's on your body. The only thing that worked for this woman, Miss Smith, was an elaborate method called, ready for this, stretching and preening that requires massaging the scalp to loosen up oil or grime and then using the fingers to stroke the hair section by section from the roots to the tips to distribute the natural oils from the scalp. Wow. Never heard of that. But the routine took more than an hour, which defeated the whole purpose for her of ditching shampoo for a no-frills lifestyle. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Marie Ng, the founder of a productivity app, chanced upon the topic on Twitter a couple of years ago in Australia where she lives during the lockdown, and she liked the idea of both helping herself and the environment. So she went cold turkey for three months before switching to using shampoo occasionally. I am curious if anyone does this. Is anyone out there part of the no-poo community? And why? Is it for environmental reasons? Is it because you think the shampoo is robbing your hair of all these natural oils? What is it? You know, it's funny. I didn't, uh, I, I didn't get a chance to mention it last hour, but Mark Erlenwein, who was just here, is a big fan of pro wrestling. And so during the, during the top of the hour news, we were talking a little bit about pro wrestling. And I'm reminded of a book that I read 30 years ago called I Was a Teenage Professional Wrestler uh, by Ted Lewin. And uh, Ted Lewin, essentially, th- this is a memoir about him becoming a professional wrestler in the 1950s. And he described, I remember this one anecdote in the book of his father said in his, I don't know, 60s, 70s, 80s, whatever the case may be. I hadn't read the book in 30 years. But his father said that he never washed his hair his whole life. Never in his whole life did he ever wash his hair. And that's what he attributed never going um, bald to. And so what his sons did, and, you know, his sons were big, you know, burly-looking guys, they held their father down and washed his hair at 75. They forced him to wash his hair, which I thought was uh, I thought was pretty interesting. But uh, this no-poo movement is apparently where it's at. So uh, people say they have a tough time with the transition, but when they do it, they do it. Big Shampoo, by the way, is obviously not in favor of this. Procter & Gamble's Head & Shoulders brand, which I use from time to time, they say uh, that that using a paste of baking soda, for instance, instead of shampoo, can upset the natural pH balance and harm both hair and scalp. So they actually put out a statement on their website. Don't listen to the hype. The best way to keep your hair clean and scalp healthy is still a good shampoo and commissioner. Rebecca Glon is an IT and exhibits manager at a museum in Western New York. She said that her hair thinned and hardly grew after she used baking soda as shampoo and apple cider vinegar as conditioner for nine months. She said the damaging effects were still evident a decade later. 
So apparently, this no shoe, this no poo movement, has its detractors. Where are you? Are you a no pooer? Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hey, look at this. Ob Murray, who was uh, a guest in studio a week or two ago, who got rave reviews, is calling in. Ob, um, you know all the political stuff we do, the foreign policy stuff, all these weighty topics, school shootings. The last thing I expected you to want to weigh in on was uh, the no poo movement, and yet here you are. Frank, Frank, as being on your show, which I was honored to be on, I had a great time with you and your crew and everybody, but. Uh... We all know that I've got that face for radio and that voice for print. So i got to uh-huh. work on my hair all the time. Please. We know that. But uh, baby shampoo, that's the, t- that's the ticket. If somebody's not washing their hair with shampoo, you want to be in the plane sitting next to them? Well, not if they smell like eggs and vinegar, that's for sure. No, no. But I, I was at the, uh, f- the Friars Club and the Princeton Club years ago, like 25 years ago, getting my hair cut. And the barbers kept on telling me, use baby shampoo to avoid losing your hair. And that's what you do? That's what I've I've used baby shampoo for at least 25 years. Nothing different. Yep. And have you found that it's, uh, well, I mean, I guess, what is the advantage? I guess it's fewer chemicals and it's less harsh. Fewer fewer chemicals, I don't lose my hair. My dad's bald, but, uh, yeah. I do okay with keeping my hair so far, but that was the, that was the ticket. I wonder how the much environment easier to easier to find your shampoo wherever you go, and uh, you know better for your hair. You don't lose it. I, well, I, how much of of losing your hair is genetic, and how much of it is due to lifestyle? What do you think? Oh, I think it's genetic, but then lifestyle just either exa- exasperates it or slows it down. Possibly, I guess. Right. Well, okay, uh, baby. Any specific variety of baby shampoo that you're recommending? Oh, I can't, I wouldn't plug anybody. They're not paying me, Frank. <laughs> and they're not paying me, so the station will appreciate that. Thank you very much, Obi. 800-848-9222. Saiful um, Yusuf is a 24-year-old accounting student in Malaysia with rich black hair that fell to his chest. He said he had a very rough week after he stopped using shampoo in early May. The grease was constantly on his mind. He said, and, after, and every hour he had to tell himself to calm down. But things improved after the second week. His sister, who was initially horrified, later gave him the all clear on his appearance, and his hair started to form big natural waves. Since his family all had straight hair, he turned to his mother for answers, and she presented a photo he'd never seen before of his father. Nowadays, the father is bald, and he has nagged his son about cutting his hair. In his youth, though, he looks like, um, you know, he he had a long, wavy mane. So I'm curious where you think this no-poo movement is going. 800-848-9222. What's your story, Matt Blaze? How often are you washing your hair? A couple times a week. A couple times a week? You know. I don't do it every time I take a shower. I take a shower every day, but not wash your hair every day. What? I know people that used to used to uh, use beer to wash their hair. Really? And yeah, like su- years ago. What is that supposed to do? Something about the minerals and, and I guess because it's, uh, was it, barley and uh, the wheat in the beer is good for your hair. And this is like I remember in high school, girls would wash their hair with beer. Really? Yeah. So, and that was even before, I guess, the no-poo movement really exploded. Yeah. Huh. That's what they used to do. They mm-hmm. said it was better for their hair. I guess just the natural minerals and oils and 
things in beer. Very interesting. 800-848-9222. Hey, uh, this is the other thing uh, that I thought was interesting. I know a, a few of the other programs uh, that uh, all day, new uh, radio, television, they've been uh, dealing with this kind of thing. But uh, there is a PSA that has been uh, making the rounds. I almost can't believe this this happened. But a PSA about warning New Yorkers about a nuclear attack. It launched on Monday. And if a summer of COVID, monkeypox, inflation... And continuing war in Europe is not enough to get you worried. At least you know that uh, you are going to be prepared for a nuclear attack. Listen to this New York City PSA that is making the rounds as of yesterday. So there's been a nuclear attack. Don't ask me how or why. Just know that the big one has hit. Okay? So what do we do? There are three important steps that I want you to remember. Step one... Get inside fast. You, your friends, your family, get inside. And no, staying in the car is not an option. You need to get into a building and move away from the windows. Step two, stay inside. Shut all doors and windows. Have a basement? Head there. If you don't have one, get as far into the middle of the building as possible. If you were outside after the blast, get clean immediately. Remove and bag all outer clothing to keep radioactive dust or ash away from your body. Step three, stay tuned. Follow media for more information. Don't forget to sign up for Notify NYC for official alerts and updates. And don't go outside until officials say it's safe. All right, you've got this. This has got to be the stupidest thing I have ever seen New York City government do. Do, do, do you think people are going to sit there following this three-part plan in the event of a nuclear attack? You see mushroom clouds popping up all around you like the last scene in Dr. Strange Love. You're going to say, oh, step one, I got to do this. Step two, let me go inside. That'll protect me. If there's If there's a nuclear attack... As the as the nuclear missile is heading towards Brooklyn, you're just going to hear people running around like crazy yelling. So, again, it's great for people to be prepared, but it almost reminds me at the height of the Cuban Missile Crisis, they would do these these drills. Oh, this is what happens if we go to nuclear war and you're supposed to stop, drop and roll. What good is that doing if you're vaporized? It's not going to do anything. It's not going to do anything. So uh, I find this a tremendous waste of time and incredibly ineffective. I would rather see more PSAs on the no poo movement. At least there's there's a community of people there. And uh, Mayor Eric Adams is defending these PSAs, saying that this new spot from the Office of Emergency Management was a great idea born out of the ongoing Russian war in Ukraine. How about uh, we encourage our policymakers and diplomats to talk to the folks in Russia? Wouldn't that be a great idea? Here's what's amazing. This is not the first community that's doing this of late. Uh, Four years ago, 
in Ventura County, California, they issued a a series of PSAs warning people. Ventura County is a suburb about 60 miles northwest of Los Angeles. So they launched this PSA campaign called Ready that aims to educate Americans on how to survive a nuclear attack. The goal is to increase the level of basic preparedness. Now, I guess it's fine, but of all the things that you're likely to die from, uh, really, nuclear attack? That's what we're going to spend their time and energy on PSA? On? I mean, maybe, maybe that's the right approach. I don't know. Uh, this is a little bit of that Ventura County PSA, which came from an intro from uh, Dr. Robert Levin, who is one of the key healthcare officials there. Hi, I'm Dr. Robert Levin. I'm the Ventura County Public Health Officer. I'm also a husband and a father. The video you're about Love to see is music. intended to increase your awareness about the steps you and your family should take to protect yourselves in the event of a nuclear explosion. Ventura County began to prepare our response to nuclear terrorism in 2006. The purpose of this message is for prevention and not because of a known threat. Now we want to share this information with our county residents in the same way we do for earthquakes, wildfires, and tsunamis. For more information, visit us on the web at readyventuracounty.org or call us at 1-800-781-4449. That's 1-800-781-4449. How about a PSA on avoiding the bubonic plague? Wouldn't that be helpful? How about New York City government coming out with a PSA uh, helping to avoid leprosy? Wouldn't that be Wouldn't that be nice? You know, I mean, um, or or, uh, or scurvy. You know, hey, here's a PSA: stay away from scurvy. Have an orange. I can't help but think those might all be uh, serving a more practical function than PSAs like this one. Mom, I know you care about me. Every day you packed me a healthy lunch. When I was five, you taught me to stop, drop, and roll. But what if something bigger happened? What if something terrible happened? What if terrorists set off a nuclear explosion? I know. Who wants to even think about the worst-case scenario? I do. I want you to. I want you to teach me. How I can survive. How our family can survive. That being outside, after a nuclear explosion, like I am right now, is the worst place I could be. And that being in a car isn't much safer. The safest place for me to be, that the safest thing for me to do, is to get inside, stay inside, Stay tuned. For more information on how you can survive a nuclear explosion, visit us on the web at readyventuracounty.org. For more information, stay inside. Stay tuned. Get inside. This PSA is brought to you by Ready Ventura County. How stupid is that? Get inside, stay inside, stay tuned. Now, it's great for us in radio and television. Because while people are worried about escaping the fallout of a nuclear blast, uh, at least they'll have their radio on or their television set on. But uh, 
Is, is that what we're really telling people? If there's a nuclear, if there's a nuclear war, war, if there's a nuclear attack, just go inside. I mean, I feel like uh, I can't help but feel like that's a lacking in practical usefulness. Why don't they just say, try not to get vaporized? <laughs> get inside, stay inside, stay tuned. I like it. But couldn't you say that about anything? Wouldn't you do that for an earthquake? Right? How, or um, a sinkhole? Or quicksand? Isn't that the strategy for everything? That was the strategy for COVID, right? Get inside, don't interact with anybody. Turn up the volume loud and proud on an Andrew Cuomo, Dr. Fauci press conference. But um, this has got to be a, absolutely absurd. You know, you know what's lacking in this? Here's what's lacking. Here's the mistake. Back in the 50s, when it looked like there was an imminent possibility of the country blowing, it, uh, the world blowing itself up in uh, an armed nuclear conflict, they had made a determination that if there was going to need to be end of the world instructions for Americans, that the person who was going to deliver those instructions, and I think he recorded a video, was Arthur Godfrey. Arthur Godfrey, the famous radio and TV commentator. That's what's missing here. They need somebody who has some sort of credibility with folks that folks are going to take seriously that they are going to listen to in the event of emergency to give instructions. They need like a Tom Hanks style person saying, hi, the world's about to blow up. Get inside, stay inside, you know, and whatever. You have a good, better way about them. Doesn't work this way. That's my my take. All right. Um, Hey, so nobody wants to talk about the no poo movement. No one wants to talk about how to prevent a nuclear war and what you should be doing if, you know, we're unsuccessful in preventing it. So what else are we to do but give away some money? We're going to give away $1,000 if you can answer 10 trivia questions in um, 60 seconds. If you want to give it a shot, be the seventh caller right now to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. $1,000 minute straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Dedicate one to the ladies. Sometimes your bank needs something to keep you cool. I know summertime's here, babe. Need something to keep you cool. Better look out now, though. Dave's got something for you. Tell you what it is. I'm your ice cream man. Stop me when I'm passing by. Oh, my, my. I'm your ice cream man. Stop me when I'm passing by. See, now all my flavors are guaranteed to satisfy. Hold on a second, baby. I gotta put my banana Van Halen talking about uh, Ice Cream Man. Uh, Today's going to be a scorcher in the Northeast, so uh, I have a feeling the Ice Cream Men are going to be doing big business today. You still have an Ice Cream Man come to your neighborhood? I have one to come to mine. I I can't remember the last time I patronized an Ice Cream Man, but if I happen to be outside when it's 90 
three degrees or so today. I um, may do that. All right. Without further ado, we are going to give someone an opportunity to win some money as part of... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Murano. Let us say hello to Daniel in Queens. Hello, Daniel. Good morning. Morning, Daniel. All right, uh, Daniel, you familiar with this game? Yes, sir. Okay, the timer will begin after I ask you the first question. Most important thing is just to remain calm, not get nervous. Most recently, we've seen people not know um, what continent is south of North America. We've seen folks not know who Barack Obama defeated in 2012. And uh, we've seen people not know what year the Pearl Harbor attack was. And I think in all those cases, they were examples of people just being nervous because they were overthinking it. The most important thing is just relax, okay? Yeah, the good thing, if I miss it, I know I'll never forget it again. Exactly. So this is helpful even if I lose. There you go. <laughs> there you go. That's an important. Uh, you know, it's so true. I got a question wrong on a game show one time, and uh, I never forgot the uh, the answer to that. So you're exactly right. All right. What color traffic light means go? Green. What state is Las Vegas located in? Nevada. What novelist wrote the books It, The Green Mile, and The Shining? Stephen King. Who is believed to have invented radio? Hmm. Edison. Uh, unfortunately not. Uh, there, you know, so the person who's credited as inventing radio is Marconi. Um, you know, uh, Marconi invented radio, and um, he was an electrical electrical engineer. Some people believe that it was somebody else, like uh, Nikola Tesla. So we would have given you credit for that uh, as well. Mm-hmm. But uh, oh, yeah, I just I, that's. I chalk it up for my Americanness. Yeah, well, uh, understandable and understandable. You're not Italian, then, I guess, right? Uh, one half. A uh, one half, and you didn't get Marconi. Well, that's my lesson for the year and lifetime because you know I'm big into radio, obviously, because I'm listening to the show. So, um, it's it's good. Okay, I'll call I'll call back some other time, but um. Oh, what else was I going to ask? Yeah, I guess I'll get it next time. Oh, yeah, the year, the year. What year was that invention uh, coined at? I believe uh, that was, you know, it was around 1909. Um, he he got the Nobel Prize in physics in 1909 because of his uh, contributions in that field. So if it wasn't actually 1909, it was a year or two before that. Uh, oh, according to Matt Blaze, it was 1895, but he wasn't he wasn't recognized uh, with the Nobel Prize until 1909. Nice, nice. Okay. All right, I'm going to put you on Next hold. Time? Yeah, exactly. I'm going to put you on hold, Daniel, and uh, give your information to Kenneth, and he will give you a a prize of some short uh, of some sort. So, um, you know, it's interesting. Marconi was an interesting guy. I I don't know if there's a good movie. 
about the life of Marconi everywhere, anywhere. If anyone knows of one, please email me. I'd love to see it. Frank.Morano at uh, WABCRadio.com. You can email me. He, in addition to being the inventor of radio, he was, and in addition to being a Nobel Prize winner, a big entrepreneur, a businessman, and then a senator in Italy. I mean, people don't know. He was actually a big politician in Italy. Only lived 63 years. But in that 63 years, accomplished a great deal. Had a lot of British patents. Had a lot of U.S. patents. Um, So he was uh, really a a go-getter. Parents must have been quite proud, I must say. All right. Uh, If you want to comment on anything we have covered thus far, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. want to encourage you as well uh, to follow me on Twitter at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. And to uh, join our Facebook group. You can uh, just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. And then we have a just a standard Facebook page where we um, post a lot of the articles that we end up talking about. For instance, I just posted on there the, um, the, the article I mentioned earlier about these parents that turned their sons in, in for mass shootings. So it's certainly an interesting article that I recommend. That's Facebook.com slash Morano fan. And then we still got that Frasier trailer up, which is a fan-made trailer for the new Frasier where, again, it's not real. It's it's satire. But where Frasier is trying to kill Niles and they make it into a thriller. And I got to say, they do a pretty good job with it. So that's all on there, uh, facebook.com slash Morano fan. Um, it is interesting. We, I have recovered from our friends that we lent cornhole to last week. We have recovered not only the cornhole game we lent them, but the folding table that we lent them. So we are rapidly approaching this barbecue on, uh, on Saturday, which... Uh, Alex Barnard is attending, so that's going to be interesting. But um, it's also, uh, those are the activities of choice, cornhole and ladder ball. Those are the outdoor activities. We've gotten a replacement ladder ball rope because the folks that we lent this to did not do a good job taking care of our ladder ball. And then they return it and don't say anything. Why wouldn't they let us know, oh, you know, this is what happened with the ladder ball, I apologize, can I replace it? Instead, it was almost like they were trying to sneak it back. But we ordered another one. So those are the activities of choice. I was at my uh, sister-in-law's on uh, Sunday for her birthday. And she had those same outdoor recreational options. I have to say, the more I've played both ladder ball and uh, cornhole, I, I find cornhole, I must say, not that fun. I mean, I still end up playing it and whatever. You're outside, you you know, you're looking for an outdoor activity that's not that's not too much, but uh it's it's very frustrating. Very frustrating. It just makes you feel bad about yourself and you can't get the stupid bean bag in the hole. Uh, I don't I don't I don't care for it. Ladder ball, different different experience. Ladder ball for some reason 
very satisfying to see the 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 rope wrap around the individual ladder, and then you can aim for the top ladder rung, and if it, that doesn't hit it, you get the second one. It's a pretty, I don't know, It's a, I find it a much more satisfying game. And then obviously we'll have bocce as well. So it is funny, um, an old friend of mine, uh, my friend Joan, we invited her to this barbecue. She was on the, the A-list, but she didn't, um, you know, she works with my mom now, actually, and I told my mom that she was invited, and she said, well, I didn't get an invitation. And so she thought maybe she wasn't really invited because we had to keep people down. Turns out I had an old email address for her, but I I then sent one to her correct email. But I think maybe she feels like she wasn't properly invited. So I sent her the email address that I had for her, and she said, oh, yeah, that was my old one. But I, I think maybe part of her feels like this was like a late invitation but so that's what's on uh, that's what's in store for for Saturday ladder ball bocce and uh, and cornhole of those three games cornhole is is easily my least favorite 800-848-9222 uh, that's 1-800-848-9222 we'll do 15 seconds of fame coming up in uh, a few minutes as well and then uh, tomorrow there's a great deal to say on the uh, subject of Atlantic City, and we're going to get the Atlantic City report, and now we we extend that to some respect in um, to our listeners in Nevada as well, because there's casinos out there as well, and try to look for whatever nexus we can between the common activities that happen in both Nevada and Atlantic City. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two, and then we'll do fifteen seconds of fame coming up in a few minutes. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. Other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. I'll tell you what I just did. I just watched that fan-made Frasier trailer again. It really is just outstanding. If um, if, you, if you want to take a look, I've linked to it on my Facebook page, facebook.com slash moranofan. That's facebook.com slash moranofan. It's really well done. It's, it's only making me want to watch this new uh, Frasier series even more, even though that I realize that this is not a proper uh, reflection of how the series is actually going to be. Hey, one thing I did want to mention before we run out of time here is it looks like we've covered this before. It looks like the country doesn't matter whether you're liberal, conservative, non-political, whatever. It looks like the country is suffering from a news hangover. America is tuning out of the news. 
engagement with news content has plunged during the first half of this year compared to the first half of 2021. In some cases, you ready for this? It's actually fallen below pre-pandemic levels. Uh, I am not surprised to hear this because I feel like I'm exhausted. And I'm not the only one. Americans have grown exhausted from this constant barrage of bad headlines that have uh, just replaced all these Trump-era crises and scandals and tweets. The level of news consumption in 2021 took a nosedive following historic highs in 2020. I mean, look, you make if you think about it, you had a big primary contest in 2020, a big general election contest in 2020. You had COVID. You had George Floyd. And so in spite of a slew of major stories this year, readers have retrenched even further. You got this year. Look, you got the war in Ukraine. You have a series of deadly mass shootings. You got the January 6th hearings. You got the Supreme Court revoking Roe versus Wade. And even with all that, we have not seen and we've not been able to capture the same level of attention spurred by the onset of the pandemic and 2020 election. I think people are just done, done. So engagement with news content across all platforms declined significantly in the first half of this year. That includes cable viewership across the uh, three major cable news networks, CNN, Fox News, MSNBC. They're on average down, ready for this, 19% in prime time for the first half of this year. And those losses skew heavily towards CNN and MSNBC, but it's not just cable news. The news app sessions for the top 12 mainstream most trafficked publishers dropped 16% in the first half of this year. Website visits for the top five news websites in this country, that's down 18% this year. Engagement on social media with news articles cratered over the past six months, down 50% since the first half of last year, in spite of the fact that there have been more articles published. So in some cases, engagement has fallen below pre-pandemic levels. They're calling this a news diet whiplash. So um, you're seeing sports and celebrity trials overshadowing hard news significantly. Over the last two years, I'll be honest, um, I'm not surprised by this. And I think this is one of the reasons why this show and the morning uh, show on WABC has done so well, because we do a lot of other topics other than hard news. And if you look at uh, WABC, the fact that we've seen them having all sorts of entertainment programming. Uh, music with Cousin Brucey and Tony Orlando and Joe Piscopo and Dina Martin. I think it only makes sense that um, that's one of the reasons we've seen the ratings go up for us while the all news stations and uh, the other news talk stations are struggling while their numbers are going down. I haven't seen the um, the most recent numbers, though. I can't can't speak to that. They just came out yesterday. Hopefully, uh, hopefully we'll get a hold of them by tomorrow. All right. If you want to comment on anything at all, the only proviso is 
It must be 15 seconds or less. That is uh, 1-800-848-9222. If you want to comment as part of... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Let me begin with Chris in the Catskills. The New York State Board of Regents needs to bring back four-track tier of learning. We need to stop stifling exceptionalism, and the board should be transformed from volunteers into paid professionals. The New York State has ruined our education system by going to one-track learning. And what? Uh, Leo on the Upper West Side. Press conference in White House. Journalists ask Jim Psaki, we heard that the prices of gas going to climb up to $10 on the end of the year. She says that's completely incorrect. I spoke to President Biden, and he promised that he's going to do anything possible to make the prices drop down to $10 on the end of the year. 800-848-9222. If you want to be heard for 15 seconds, Eddie in Nassau. In case of atomic attack, follow these three rules. Put hands behind head, tuck head between legs, and kiss your derriere goodbye. 800-848-9222. Mike in New Jersey. Good morning, Frank. Frank, in case there is a nuclear strike, first thing I'm going to do is go inside and wash my hair with a gallon of shampoo. Because like George Costanza... Thick, lustrous hair is important to me. 800-848-9222. Gary on Staten Island. This is Dr. Strangelove. Stanley Kubrick. Or how I learned to stop worrying and love the Bob. Ah, 800-848-9222. Janine in Westchester County. Hello, Frank. You know what? Human beings are carbon-based life forms. And plants take in carbon dioxide and give out oxygen. So why are people trying to tell us we need to get rid of carbon dioxide? We need carbon dioxide to live. What's up with that? 800-848-9222. Mark in New Haven. Good morning, Frank. Russell and the boys, the boys okay? Uh, not so, come with everybody's great. You know, so the um, reason the people don't watch the news is, A, they lie to us a lot, and B, you're wrong. I don't have any influence and I don't know how to use it. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Peter in New Jersey. Sizzle moron, sizzle moron, sizzle. You know, I got to give this guy credit. He is nothing if not committed. I mean, you talk about uh, that guy and the Janine Pirro uh, is a criminal guy, and and Steve in Manhattan, the Go Buchanan Go guy. The three of them really could teach a course, a combined course in stick to itiveness. Because the level of effort and attention that these three gentlemen put into driving everybody else crazy is just extraordinary. Absolutely extraordinary. Um, by the way, so maybe I was too harsh in this this nuclear fallout video. I got an SMS text message here. Do you want to survive the nuclear explosion? You don't die on impact but suffer from the fallout for months. So, I mean, what does that mean? You think you're really going to be saved from nuclear fallout by just being inside your house? You got to breathe, right? Where does the air come from that's in your house? I don't know. It comes from outside. You're going to have a tough time. I got news for you. Um, but I'm getting a lot of nice Marconi emails now uh, as well, sharing all sorts of interesting thoughts about uh, about Marconi, which uh, which I appreciate. Thank you very much. By the way, we did decide... 
on these uh, special local commentaries that we're doing on uh, WABC in New York, and I apologize, I know one of them aired twice. We did decide we're, this is the operating plan as of now. We are going to podcast them, but it's not going to be on the Other Side of Midnight podcast. It's going to be on the podcast Frank Morano Interviews and More. So if you want to hear what you're missing in those short-form commentaries, then you must subscribe to the podcast Frank Morano. So just search that in uh, in your podcast app. It's free also. It'll come to your phone also. And uh, those will come to your house each and every, you know, each, well, not your house, but your iPhone or your smartphone each and every morning. I used to say iPod, but I don't know if anybody still has an iPod that they use to actually download podcasts. It's one of those things where the term has kind of outlived the technology. It's like when we talk about taping something or TiVoing something or, you know, whatever the case may be, the or the of taking a photograph of something. The technology sort of outlived that. All right. Uh, tomorrow should be an action-packed show. Brian Kilmeade is going to be here. We're going to pick his brain on a lot of interesting stuff in the news. we got the AC report and uh, some great alien stuff uh, for tomorrow as well. I've just posted in the Facebook group the uh, the music that was featured on the program this morning. If you're curious about who the artist was or what the song that we selected was, you can just go to the Facebook group to search Morano Radio Fans and haters, as always, you're welcome to stay in touch with me via email, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Oh, I finally saw, um, I started the most recent season of The Orville, which I really like, with Seth MacFarlane. A caller called in Friday about that and kind of reminded me that I hadn't seen it yet. Now that I finished The West Wing, I started The Orville. I liked the first episode. I thought it was good. You know, it's a little lighthearted. That's fine. I don't think it's winning any Emmys anytime soon, but it's a nice story. It's easy to understand. If you're a sci-fi fan or a Seth MacFarlane fan, I think it's a great show. It's now on Hulu, by the way. All right. uh, Until tomorrow, Frank Moreno, good day. This is Greg Kelly for Priority Gold. What does it mean to be America's precious metals dealer? It means that you're in touch with the hearts and minds of those who love this country, value our freedom, and want to protect the future. Priority Gold is that precious metals dealer. They've helped thousands of Americans back their retirement with solid gold and silver. Call Priority Gold at 888-506-6439. Receive free shipping, free storage, a free investment guide, and one of the best purchase experiences in the industry. Call now or go to prioritygold.com.